0: Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the
1: nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered.
2: As a decade turned into a new millennium, ATP had a transition era set in place. The number one ranking was occupied by five different players in '99: Sampras, Moya, Kefalnikov, Agassi, and Rafter all these players were expected to meet the challenge of a new wave of talent, which was somewhat identified in, in the names we were looking at, at that time were Kirtan, Guga Kirtan, Magnus Norman, Leighton Hewitt, Marat Safin, Nicholas Kiefer, and Roger Federer. This potential clash of generations kickstarted the decade with ample anticipation among all sorts of fans the media personalities, and today helping me do honors, looking back at the decade of two uh, powerhouse of knowledge hall of famer steve flink and coach mercer tunga as we resume our series when we talk about the decades of atp welcome guys how are you both doing
0: so very good sakib it's nice to be with you and always always fun to be with mer
1: but yeah it's great to be with you guys sorry that's like basically what i was saying it's an it's an honor to be with steve and sakib uh, always always a delight to be on your podcast
2: we know what you were saying, but it's always good to hear it from you. So, you know, we can we can play a loop of this.
1: <laughs> no, it's no problem. Oh, no problem.
2: So I'm going to, I mean, there's a lot of ground we can cover here, right? As I mentioned, this is going to be a decade that's Roger Federer's decade. Rafa Nadal makes the legendary rivalry and inroads towards, you know, his dominance years. And of course, Novak Djokovic and uh, Andy Murray make an appearance towards the end of the decade. But uh, we have to start with the decade with, uh, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, and that crew. Uh, Steve. So, when 2000 entered, what were your expectation of Sampras? I know he had, you know, reached six seasons as number one. Ninety-nine. He still, I think, won the Hanover Championship in pretty emphatic fashion. Won Wimbledon in one of his most dominant manners. So, what did what do you remember of the beginning of 2000? Did you expect Sampras to have a longer stay, or did you expect Agassi to outlast outlast Sampras? In terms of longevity, now we know how it played out. What do you remember of that time?
0: Now, what I remember most is just that he was he was so close to he had he had his twelve majors by then, so he was, he was so uh, deeply determined to get that thirteenth. And the year started, and he he had a great match with Agassi in the semis of the Australian, and he'd come off as you just mentioned the, the dominant performance at Wimbledon in '99 when he beat Agassi, and maybe the masterpiece match of his career in the finals, and then he almost replicated it in the year end championships against Agassi indoors at the end of the year. So he went over to Australia, I think at the start of 2000 thinking maybe, maybe break the record there uh, for grand slam titles that he shared with Roy Emerson. They each had 12 at that time. And then he lost a, a very hard fought five setter where he got injured midway and still almost pulled it off. But it was a very high quality clash and Agassi went on to take the title. And, uh, what I remember was, okay, that meant he probably wasn't going to win the French. And therefore, you know, the, in other words, the whole overriding quest at that point, he wanted to get that. I don't want to say get it off his back, but he, he certainly wanted to get the, seal that record, and, and which he'd been striving for for so long, and which he was getting asked about in every press conference. So that's what I remember most. And then, of course, fittingly, It happened when he won his seventh Wimbledon with his parents having flown over and he beat Rafter in the finals in that 2000 Wimbledon final. That's when he broke the record. And at that stage, I guess I felt like a lot of people, you know, what's what's going to be left on the psychological agenda? What's going to motivate him now? Because he's been trying so hard for that record for so long. He'd already had six years in a row at number one in the 90s, as you mentioned, 93 to 98. So I guess. I didn't think of it in terms of Agassi. And frankly, I didn't think Agassi would uh, uh, sustain his excellence as long as he did and have such a good deck first half of the decade. Uh, But I I, I guess I wasn't shocked that Pete found himself sort of devoid of ambition for a while after winning Wimbledon in 2000. He still very nearly won the Open, but as it turned out, Saqib, as you know, he went into a what they call the 33 tournament drought. Now, amidst it all, he was in the finals of the 2000 and 2001 U.S. Opens, but he finally capped his career with that magnificent win over Agassi in the finals of the 2002 U.S. Open, the last official match he would ever play. So that was a fascinating period because maybe it took all the bruises and all the sort of lack of motivation and trying to figure out what he really wanted out of the game now to uh, bring him to that point at the 2002 U.S. Open. But uh, obviously, how many players can celebrate success quite that way where they end their career entirely on their own terms with a victory at a major, where it had essentially all started 12 years earlier when he beat Agassi in the 1990 final. So that's what I remember in terms of Sampras. What about you, Mert?
1: Yeah, I remember pretty much basically like you did. You remember a lot more in detail, of course, being the uh, being a Sampras player. Uh, uh, Experts, so uh, and uh, but uh, what I wanted to ask you Steve is um, a lot of times this question gets asked and we get uh, mixed answers and for someone who has talked to him many times uh, obviously you wrote a book on him uh, what was his thought process it did, did retirement even cross his mind during the tournament or what or did it something that slowly began developing after he won the title did something specific happen in the weeks that happened that uh, took place following the title that led him uh to that decision, if you could, uh, if, I don't know if you have any insight on that, if you could clarify a little so, bit. So,
0: I'm not sure exactly what you mean. In other words, following the Wimbledon win?
1: No, following the U.S. Open title in Oh, following the U.S. Open.
0: Oh, yes, it, it yes. was a process. There were, there were. I think it might have been in the back of his mind even before he won that title. What, what a great way, we, but he hadn't really thought it through. And in typical fashion, he kept, he started pulling out of tournaments, as you probably recall, in that autumn yes. of 2000. And then the thought was, you know, he needed that time, but he'll come back in the next And then he started pulling out of more tournaments. And finally he just pulled the plug. And I think he d- made the decision in typical Sampras fashion, Mert, in that he didn't rush it. He wanted to make sure he was doing the right thing. And that he it was really things, yeah, a wise choice. So rather than just others might have just made the decision pretty quickly over the fall, of, uh, you know, and decided uh, in the fall of 2002, okay, that's it. But no, he, he took, he really took his time over a period of months and then finally found himself there were just these signs where he didn't want to practice and Anacone came over one day and, and he said, I'm done. And he said, what do you mean you're done? He says, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. I mean, he, he so he, by the, he had plenty of time to sort through it in his mind, Mert. And, and in, you know, true to his character, he made a good choice because there were those who thought, I'm sure you did, probably did too, Mark. Well, maybe given the way he played at the O2 Open, which many people thought was in some ways the most uh, persuasively aggressive brand of tennis he'd ever played with the huge Agreed. second errors. I mean, he played really spectacular tennis, particularly against Roddick in the quarters and, and Agassi in the final. Mm-hmm. And the thought was, okay, well, how about one more Wimbledon because Wimble- his Wimbledon. Had ended in 2002 on a, on a kind of a sour note, sour losing note, to the lucky yeah. loser George Vastel. But I think he was smart, Mert, because anything short of winning Wimbledon had he gone back the following year, had he played it in 03, any, a, a semifinal or final round appearance, I don't think would have sati- satisfied him at all. Yes. He would have had to have won it. So in the end, I, I thought it was a good decision. Do, do you agree?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you, and you know you could you could also make an argument to to support what you're saying that uh, that his his skills did somewhat decline, you know, during the 2001 and 2002, and then he yeah. had and that tournament in O2 U.S. Open, all of a sudden starting starting with the quarterfinals, especially against Roderick, because that was billed yeah. as a big nighttime match, generational yeah. change, etc. And I'm sure that motivated him, and he played fantastic tennis, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. And like you say, it was just the most uh, uh, most beautiful display of aggressive tennis that I've ever seen. You know, we often say, well, nobody likes short rallies. Nobody likes one, two-shot rallies. Well, Sampras made that look good in the finals against Agassi. I mean, he he did not want to engage in any sort of rallies against Agassi at all. He, it was one big, big first serve, big second serve, big returns, big forehands. And if he misses, he misses. But if he makes them, he makes them. And he made most of them. And I don't think Agassi played badly that day. It just was uh, was outpowered and outclassed by by Sampras. That was a great match.
0: It was, and, and made greater, I think, by the fact that Sampras was so close to being able to close it out. They had a marathon game at the end of the third set, and he's serving into the wind, and it's five six. He's trying to get to a tiebreak, and Agassi finally breaks him, and that meant that Pete had to go back to work in the fourth set with the crowd getting exhilarated. And Maybe having thoughts of a five center, and he he's told me he did not want to go five, uh, he was feeling it physically a bit, so I, I think it made it all the more special that he fended Andre off and finally got the break at four all in the fourth and served it out. And in typical fashion, there was the 30 love point when he served for the match where Mert where, where he went for the 119 mile an hour second yes. serve down the tee for an ace. So that was that was a really uh, I think it made it. All the more rewarding that he had to go for, uh, that that he wasn't able to finish him off in straight, but that he still had the the discipline and the uh, the conviction to get it done.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's what I remember too. I think uh, Greg Rosetsky kind of kickstarted his open campaign, you know, by doing some sort of trash talk banter that Sampras wasn't the same, and what a unfollowed is slower. His, he was a step, step slower, slower, and then said, yeah, yeah, I think he kind of came into zone. And I was also there in the semis on Ash that day. I bought tickets to watch Sampras beat Shank Schalken, I yeah. had gotten there because Filipousis, again, in a career marked by injuries, had to retire. He was looking quite good earlier in the week. And then Agassi and Hewitt played a hell of a semifinal. I was uh, there, and I enjoyed every bit of it. Hewitt was a defending champion. Then I watched the final at home. And I also got a chance first time to see Boris Becker live because he played John McIndo later in the evening in a one tiebreak exhibition which got cancelled in two thousand one, uh, which was supposed to be the appetizer before the All Williams uh, mm. final. So yeah, a lot of you know Becker, Agassi, Sampras, McEnroe. One day I saw at the Open and Hewitt. So yeah. Well, uh,
0: Sakib, you, 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 just a quick comment on what you were saying at the beginning. That that Roszczek match was important. It was a third round. It was a five set match played over two days. There was a lot of rain over that Labor Day weekend. So. It's, Sampras had to sleep on that match. The first I come back, eventually win it in five. And yes, it's true. Greg trash talked and said, he's a half a step slower. He's a step slow. This isn't the same Pete Sampras, you know, 13 time Grand Slam champion that you all know. And he, he, I interviewed Rosensky for the book, Mert, and he he was interesting about that. He just said he felt that it was probably he was just pretty upset. He was upset because it, it was such a close match. And it ended on a very close call on the sideline where Greg went for a forehand pass down the line, was called wide. And Greg mm-hmm. was reflecting a few years back about how he wished he could have had a challenge. You know, there was no challenge system in place. And, you know, you didn't have Hawkeye. But he,
1: he also uh, claimed he he, he blames the loss on the fact that he had too much respect for Sampras, that, that he shouldn't have had too much respect for Sampras. Yeah, and he probably. claimed that uh, Sampras would lose. The next round, I think. uh, Yeah, he did. He said
0: he'll lose the high. Yeah, but he admitted to me in the book, he, he realized that like a lot of players who come in after a tough loss, maybe a bit embittered and a little irrational, a little angry. And he was quite reasonable when we spoke for the book. And he was actually quite laudatory of Pete for going on and winning the tournament. He talked about where he was when he watched it and what a great way it was to end a career. So I don't think he really meant it as disrespectfully as it came off. But Pete did not feel like it was the motivating factor. It's, others did. Others like Courier and McEnroe felt like it gave Pete maybe a little extra juice. You know, it, it 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 made him all the more determined. I I I think he 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 tended to just put those things aside and play, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter to him. But regardless, so the- that was a pivotal match because it was a five setter, and it went to four all in the fifth, so it was very tight, and uh, that led to the Tommy Haas win. The erotic win and right on right through the finals against Agus.
1: He was paraphrased. Pete Sampras was paraphrased. That seven said, uh, "Well, I didn't need to be. I didn't need that extra step to beat uh, Greg." Right. So th- right. th- th- <laughs> I don't know if that's true. If he really said, "Well, that he also," or not, but, no, uh,
0: yeah, it is. He said to me for in the, in the book. He said, "Look, if if somebody like McEnroe had said that about me, it might have stung. But this was Greg, and he didn't mean it. He said it was just Greg being Greg." And he didn't mean it as a put down of Greg, but it was just I think he knew that maybe Greg was inclined to say the wrong things at certain times and just, uh, you know, maybe not edit himself as well as he could have. And so I think, you know, that was that was interesting to me because the press, they kept making a big deal out of it and asking him about it. And Pete always said no. And even when I spoke to him for the book uh, four years ago about it, he still had the same attitude that no to him. It it really didn't matter. And, and he, he got the idea that Greg was a bit uh, a bit embittered about the loss and, and just and that was that.
2: So, yeah, I mean, this is really a good start to this conversation because Sampras Agassi were key figures coming into the decade and still dominant players in their own right. So, Mert, same question for you with a slightly different twist. With the New Balls campaign launch in 99, if you look back, I mean, Jesus, 24 years ago, Who are some of the guys that you were expecting to do well? Because from my vantage point, if someone had told me at the beginning of 2000 that Pat Rafter won't win another major and he would retire in a year and a half, I wouldn't have taken that. Granted, he had like uh, some injury trouble in 99, I think. Uh, Then he came to the US Open in 2000, losing first round to Galo Blanco. He's one guy. Kefelnikov is one guy. Rios is one guy. We were introduced a bit to Safin and Hewitt, but what do you recall? Who were some of the guys who you were thinking thinking at that time that would make a great challenge for the early part of the decade, because we were really not introduced to Federer's might yet. Federer was there, but nobody knew he's going to be that kind of a guy. Like, it's fair to say, Nicholas Kiefer was talked about a lot more than Roger Federer at, in 99.
1: So, kib you, as you're asking a question that, uh, that in my opinion, marks uh, the whole decade I feel like uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you used the used the phrase earlier. You said this potential class of generation, and you mentioned some of the names already. But uh, there, there's a, a dozen names, eight or ten that I can come up with in my mind that that never, that did not fulfill their potential or what uh, what people thought they might do for various reasons. You know, some of them just had a quick decline in skill. And retired very quickly. So some of them were injured, and then you know, it could, for a variety of reasons, we can you know, as the names come up, we can we can go into detail because I, I just, you know, I could talk about Yevgeny Kafelnikov, uh, I could talk about Guga who had a hip injury, Magnus Norman, you know, Marcelo Rios finished uh, the, the the previous decade very strong, and these 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 players just very quickly uh, declined for one reason or another. And then disappeared in a matter of uh, two or three years after, after they reached the top of their career. Looking back, and this trend actually continued uh, for the rest of the decade too. I felt like, in terms of talent and what could have been, this was an incredible decade. And uh, and in a way, the um, the 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 Federer Nadal rivalry that that came uh, that came up through you know 2004 and 2005, and that marked the decade and. And it marked, in my opinion, the the, the comeback of men's tennis into prominence. Uh, it could have had a lot more supporting characters, and it never panned out. And uh, you know, in other words, we we had a great uh, decade because of Federer and Nadal, you know, of surging. But it could have been so much better. And you know, and the reason is some of the names that that you mentioned. I mean, these these players, their their careers were cut short either because of injuries. Or, or, or many, many, there, there, there's a whole uh, uh, slew of reasons why they got cut short. You know, it could be it, it could be sickness. I mean, even a guy like Mario Ancic, for example, who, uh, who who was, you know, slowly coming into his own early 2000s. And then in 2016 has a has a great uh, season and enters top 10 and he's and he's beating he's beating the top players, you know, here and there. He's not uh, he's not there yet, but he has wins over them. And he's got a very unusual game, big serve, serves and volleys on fast services, and, and he gets monocleosis. You know, that's just a small example of uh, of 10 or 11 players that could have made the decade so much richer in terms of supporting cast. And I would argue that one or two of them, a guy like Marat Safin, for example, could have even challenged the, the top spot.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, you know, one podcast I want to do at some point because uh, Safin is someone who's, you know, captured my imagination that part of the decade, those four or five years, we kept waiting for him to become what he was supposed to become. Now well, it's even, easy. In hi- sorry.
1: No, is, I'm sorry. Even before him, I mean, you know, you, you had Kafelnikov wins a major in 1999 and finishes the year ranked number two. And then in 2000, he starts the year with Australian Open final, wins the Olympics in October, finishes the year ranked, no, ranked number four. And then in, you know, in, in 2002, he wins four smaller titles. I mean, in 2001 and 2002, wins four smaller titles and plays his last tournament in 2003 at the age of 29. And he's gone. And, you know, same with uh, Marcelo Rios. Quick decline, a, a slew of injuries. One of the strongest finishers of nine, 1990s. But, uh, it, you know, little over two years after, after the year 2000, he also retires. He's out of top 100 and retires at the age of 29. Magnus Norman. You know, the, the strong 2000 and uh, he retires because of a hip injury. Guga's, you know, success is cut short because of, because of hip injuries. Marat Safin, we can talk about him more in detail. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. Mark, You know, Mark Filipousis later, he reaches the final of Wimbledon in 2003, has a bad 2004 and off the court because of injuries. His knees become, become pro- problematic and he's, he, he never reaches his potential. He's gone after a few years. And and even guys who stuck around, you know, like a Juan Carlos Ferrero, who who had the 2003 wins the French Open and reaches the final of U.S. Open, his best year, and then he's never top ten again after that. Had, you know, it's, he had chickenpox.
2: He had chickenpox in 2004, and then he was never the same guy. Right, you
1: exactly, know? exactly. So, you know, so, but but the, 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 I, mean, I could go on and on, but I don't want to take up a lot of time. It's just I feel like 2000s, starting with those names in the very beginning. Uh, it was almost like a bad sign that just kept continuing throughout the years, 2000, 2004, six, seven, eight, nine. And I can give an example as late as 2008 or 2009, you know, for out of guys that, uh, you know, that didn't, and and ironically, the decade ends with Juan Martin Del Potro, who has a fantastic 2009 wins the U S open. And then, and then, you know, 2010, he's uh, he's out for nine months because of his, <laughs> his, his wrist injury. It's just, it's all, all all over the decade.
2: That's a great yeah. example. Let me bring Steve in quickly with, you said, Juan Martin Del Potro, 2009. So Steve, you know, you did a book on Sampras and you've covered them all. The decade started with Agassi. Did you see those three Australian Open titles coming in the beginning no. of the decade? Because he looked invincible there.
0: No, I didn't. I didn't see it coming. I, I was very impressed that he kind of made up for lost time in his 20s when he was distracted and going through difficulties in his personal life and things happen and I, I wouldn't have expected that the first half of Agassiz's thirties would be so productive. So I, I, tip my hat to him. And also it's worth mentioning that in that period, uh, Mert and Sakib from 2001, two and three, Agassi ended those years ranked three, two and four, which I never would have anticipated. So yes, I tip my hat to him for the sort of the way he restored his pride and found it maybe in uh, his best level of professionalism to, do so well in his early 30s. I just want to make a couple of quick comments to keep about what Mert was. Mert, all, everything he said is absolutely valid. I I would single out two people from that period. You already mentioned Safin. Now, here's what I think got, and I don't think, and both of you have alluded to injuries guys had. There, no doubt there were a multitude of reasons why the, some of these people didn't quite succeed on the level we might have hoped. But uh, Safin is a special case because, he wins that U.S. Open with that signature performance against Sampras in the two thousand final, and he just it was it was it was a devastatingly potent display, both off the ground and on serve. And Pete couldn't break him, and Marat's return magnificently. And you thought any of us who saw him that day would have thought, "Here's a guy that's gonna he's he's surely gonna win seven or eight major is in his career." That was my thought that day. He's so young and so capable. And such a, a versatile talent. And he said not long after that, that he was, I can't remember if he said it that day or shortly after that day, but he said, I'll never play that well again in my life. And I thought to myself, what a negative, why would you be that negative? You, you, you're young, you can get better. Your thought should be, I can't believe how well I played against Pete, and I'm going to try to build on that. And I'm excited because I'm so young. I know I have room to improve 10, 15, 20%. There's so many areas of my game I can improve. So I think he kind of got in his own way psychologically by thinking that way. And then fortunately, he finally won that 2005 Australian where he knocked off Federer from match point down, beat Hewitt in the finals. And at least he got his second major, which I think carried him in to the Hall of Fame. But I thought he was a special case of someone who got in his own way. Rios, too, was was quite negative sometimes in his thinking and and he would get in his own way and then, then the other one I would like to mention is David Nalbandian. David Nalbandian his, to me was, was, was after after Sappenberg would be the most unfulfilled. Think of what he did throughout that decade the consistency but I what I think of most is 2007 when he he had these mass, two Masters one thousands in Madrid and Paris in, in indoor hard, where in both tournaments he beat both Federer and Nadal. In one of them he beat Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. He also won the UN Championships in 05. I thought he—it's he, kind of a shame—and he beat Roger in the finals there. It's kind of a shame because he was in the finals of Wimbledon and he lost there to Hewitt. He'd never played on the center court. Maybe if he'd had. Murd a little bit more center court experience. It could have helped him, but Hewitt outclassed him in the final. And then he had the semis of the US Open in 03 against Loddick with a match point that Andy saved with a 138 mile an hour service winner and came out of it from two sets down to win in five. So, but I thought now Bandian was such a great groundstroker and just a great player, period. Uh, so I think of him and Safin, th- those are the two I regret the most not doing more. But then the last thing I just want to tack on to all that is that it, as, as we started off talking about Federer and Nadal were emerging in a very big way. Roger won his first major in 03 at Wimbledon. Rafa wins his first at two years later at Roland Garros. And then they had this period at six, seven and eight, 2006, seven and eight, where they met in the French and Wimbledon finals back to back three years in a row. So they, they were becoming so dominant and, and so prodigious that I can, and then uh, Djokovic came along by 07. He was he was number three in the world. They were. They, I, I think it was pretty intimidating, Mert, for a lot of the other guys. How great these guys were, and how invulnerable they seemed. And then, of course, it continued. And look what ended up eventually happening. You know, twenty majors for Roger, twenty-two for Rafa, Djokovic at twenty-four. Now they sort of locked a lot of guys out. Now you can, we can, we can lament the fact that guys maybe didn't take full advantage of their opportunities on the other hand this towering trio but particularly in the period we're talking about Federer and Nadal were were such uh, such potent forces in the sport that i think they they discouraged a lot of other players when it came to the latter stages of majors and what they might accomplish but i to get back to my other point Safin Safin Nabandi and I, I really feel both of them should have been able to do a whole lot more and i'm sorry they didn't yeah, yeah, I
1: would like uh, to. If I could add just a couple of more points to um, to what yeah. Steve is saying, Sutton Saf- and Nalbandian definitely, uh, You know, uh, Steve, for example, mentioned two thousand seven for Nalbandian and uh, that th- you know that's the year his abdominal he had actually three different injuries: abdominal, back, and leg injuries. But yet he still accomplished what Steve just mentioned, and then towards the end of the year, he's you know he finishes the year number nine. Drops out of t- top ten in 2008. Briefly gets back into it, but then you know, then he's quickly. It's just a really quick decline, you know, from from where he was 2004 to 2007, and um, you know, the, and, and about Seth, and Like Steve mentioned, you know, he he, he won that uh, that U.S. Open early in the decade, but then he also finished. You know, he hired um, uh, Peter Lundgren in the, in the spring of 2004. And ends up finishing 2004 very strong. Wins Madrid and in Madrid indoors Masters and Paris Masters routinely. He 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 destroyed Nalbandian in the finals of the Madrid uh, Masters, for example, and then pushed Federer to the limit in the semis of the Masters Cup. They had that epic tiebreaker in the second yeah. set, and uh, and then and then comes back and wins the Australian Open to start 2005. And uh, you know I thought all the ingredients were in place to, for him to to rise up to the top, and even. Challenge uh, Federer and Nadal for for uh, for the top spot in in 2005, but then you know get, he gets a knee injury, which kind of ruins the rest of 2005. But but he's still stuck with Lundgren. and the, but you know they split late summer of 2006, and he never gets to to pass fourth round of any majors after that, except yeah, uh, yeah. except in 2008 in Wimbledon, which was a huge surprise semifinal run. And yeah. I I listened to I remember you know listening to. Uh, Peter Lundgren in an interview who who said that uh, Marat was a was a was a funny guy that in the sense that he was never interested unlike Federer and other players that you know um uh Lindgren coached before he was never interested in in watching any footage of his opponents before matches you know or talking about what his opponents should do he was just interested in what he what what Peter thought what what Peter thought Marat should do on the court and that's it you know, yeah, just, that's uh,
0: interesting, Mert, Because interested. I inter- I remember interviewing Peter Lundgren, talking to him about Morat, and we were talking then. Of course, this was long before the coaching uh, the coaching was permitted on the limited scale it is now. But at that time, of course, it was banned, and if 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 you got caught, you know, a player would get the warning, and they they were subject su- subjected to the to the rules. And uh, Lundgren told me that he was concerned about it, I guess, that he was gonna, giving Morat this advice and, look, you can get penalties for this. And, and Safin said to him, I don't care. I want I want the advice. I want the card. <laughs> Which yeah, is interesting true. and not surprising yeah. in a way. So Lundgren continued with it. But I I, th- I think of that as you said that. But just a quick backtrack, if we can, Sakib, to the to, before we move on with the decade and some of the other things we're going to talk about, is it's 2000? Is a, was a particularly interesting year when you think about it because it was the emergence of Safin and, and of course, uh, Guga. And it came down to the wire at the end of the year. And Saffin had had such a great second half with the Open and looked like he was going to finish the year number one. They went to the year-end championships. And what happens is that Guga knocks off Sampras in the semifinals and Agassi in the finals to take it away from Safin. If he hadn't won both those matches, Safin would finish the year number one. But what an interesting year that the decade would start with these two these two guys battling it out for number one, not Sampras and Agassiz. And then we'd have Hewitt to follow in 01 and 02. So the de- ending the year at number one. So it was really an interest very uh surprising in some ways, start to the decade as as the game was sort of realigning itself in some ways, and Sampras was figuring out what he wanted to do, and Agassiz was. Kind of recharging his engines, and, and he was making he he was making his runs as well. But that those two guys would end up finish, you know, battling it out for number one in two thousand. and That Hewitt would take over in that brief window that he had as the top player in oh one and oh two. So that was quite a start to the decade, and and of course there was a lot to follow.
2: Yeah, I'd like to just chime in uh, without a question here. My observations on Safin, because I followed his career. Uh, very closely uh, from whatever I could. So 2000 is an interesting point because before he won, started winning, you know, he reached the quarters at the Roland Garros. But before that, I think there was a time between Australia and the clay season, he lost six or seven matches. And he even was contemplating taking a break from the sport because he was quite negative, like Steve said. And then he puts on this amazing run, I think, wins Valencia and plays a clay final with Cougar Ferrero, And then... You know, the rest is history. Takes Sampras out in the quarters in Toronto, wins it, and then also wins the Open. And he's, Steve, another guy who I I remember, of course, you interviewed him and sat in the press rooms. I remember some quotes. If you fast forward to 2005, when he wins at Australian Open, before his knee injury becomes a factor, everybody's thinking this is where Safin and Federer could become rivals. I think somewhere in Hamburg or something, he said, look, guys, I'm going to paraphrase him as accurately as I can. He said, look, I'm no Federer. I'm good, but you know what you guys are trying to do is I'm not at the same level. So, and and all of us who follow tennis, you before the arrival of Nadal, Safin had more game than Roddick, Hewitt, and Juan Carlos Ferrero. But it was just his, not resignation, but it was just his. He he marched to a different drum. He he just didn't see himself dominating. He said, "Look, someone like me who uh, had a sponsor and my mother sent me to Valencia. I did two majors, and that's more than you know. I, I achieved a lot." So he never liked the pressure that came to him that he should have won five, six majors. It should have been between Roger and him briefly because the way he played 2005, his knee became a factor and then he couldn't move the way he was because it's an interesting fact for both of you if you already don't know. 2015 or uh, 2005 Australian Open is his last title. And after that, he won 95 or 96 matches in the next four or five seasons combined. Many leads were blown. Many matches were lost. Where he was a setup to a Robredo or a Christoph Legan or you know, it, it just became a norm. He just couldn't finish matches. And Davidenko said once I think players know Safin hits an open hand open stance forehand now. So his forehand breaks down more because that wasn't the technique he started with. And his his baseline rallying ability became less. So that's a very interesting topic for another day that he the injuries got in the way and the the knee surgery he never I think underwent was probably the biggest decline. And then, you know, he was never the same guy. Like Lundgren left, and I think uh, he hired another coach uh, in Argentine. But yeah, he he remains like a podcast by himself. I don't want to take too much time. This is supposed to be a Federer podcast and an Adal podcast. But before we go there, I want to give you both a player each because we have to do justice to Andy Roddick and Leighton Hewitt. So Mert, if you take about talk about Hewitt, and uh, Steve can talk about Roddick, what did he see? The decade started with for both these guys, because unlike Safin, they had a discipline of a champion. They may not have Safin's ability, but they had the Federer-Nadal drive to get the maximum out of their body, their game. So, Bird, fill in a young listener about Leighton Hewitt, especially the early few years, because this guy was punching so much above his weight, you know, at 5'11", you know, he was not supposed to be back-to-back number one, but he has something special that sometimes gets overlooked because of brilliance of the big three and even the brilliance of Marat Safin. And Steve, then I'll come back to you about Andy Roddick.
1: You know, it's uh, what's funny about Leighton Hewitt is you can't, you you can hardly mention, you, you know, when you talk about certain players, you can say, well, their touch, their big forehand, their uh, their big serve, uh, their, uh, you know, they're just serve and volleyer, great serve and volley, or great retriever. But when you talk about Leighton Hewitt, you can't really say any of these things. He, the guy just had an incredible heart. And he, you know, we just talked about unfulfilled potential type of players that could, that could have come in, uh, that done better. I mean, here's a guy who I thought did a lot better than anyone could have guessed when his career per, perhaps started. And and it's just through sheer will and uh, and and fight. And uh, he did have a good, he did have good footwork, which completely fit uh, the 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 ID, you know, his tennis ID, his tennis personality. He ran after every single ball and he got him back and you would, and you know, he won. I mean, this guy won Wimbledon and U.S. Open and made late runs in, um, in almost every tournament. He reached the quarterfinals of the French Open twice too. And uh, really what I, what I, the only thing that I could say about a uh, uh, Leighton Hewitt is not spec, nothing spectacular, but a spectacular heart. And, uh, and he just—he's—he's one of the ultimate overachievers, if—if if you ask me. In the in, in since since the turn of the decade, you know, since the since the beginning of the twenty first century, his with what he said in his uh in his uh, repertoire, he made the most out of it. You know, the, a lot of players uh a lot of players that had a lot more than him in their in their uh, trick bag, could not did not have half the career that he had.
2: He has to be a coach's delight, right, Bert? Because it doesn't leave anything out <laughs> without there.
1: Without a doubt. Oh God! Without a doubt. Yes, yes. He's uh, and and I'm and I'm there. And you cannot be that way, in, you know, in uh, in a match on the court if you're not that way in practice. And if somebody's trying that hard in practice every single day, that's a coach's delight, right there, before they even step on the court to make a, to to play a competitive match.
2: Steve, you want a weigh on Hewitt, but also I want your views on Andy Roddick. He came on you know, replacing the legendary American quartet, and especially Pete and Andre, who are they still playing. Sometime I think the cards dealt were a little unfair because the ESPN and everybody in the media seemed like he was, you know, the crown prince. And then, you know, reality in the form of Roger Federer, you know, measured his career and they became good friends. And Roddick's been pretty humble and pretty articulate about how he sees that phase of his career. But talk about the early Roddick years. And uh, I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, he should have won more given the guys he was tacked against. But uh, what are your recollections? How do you summarize that career? Because in any other era, I think he could be sitting at at least two or three Wimbledon's.
0: Couple of things, uh, uh sakib First, just to tack on a little bit to what Mert was saying with his excellent analysis of Hewitt, I would like to to laud him for what I think is one of the great returns of serve I've, I've seen. And and I do think that served him well. Now, obviously return a serve alone, it doesn't change everything Mert said about Leighton. It's true. Uh, you wouldn't. There were no standout features to his game, but he was highly intelligent, an excellent match player, and that return a serve, I think, put him in very good stead. So I wanted just to say that. And now, as far as Andy's concerned, I do think, Sakib, that you make a good point, and you could argue that with no Federer around, you know, what could Andy have accomplished? I do have a recollection and I think you'll be amused by this. I'm talking with a British reporter named Eleanor Creston. It was during the 03 U.S. Open when Andy was on his way to winning his lone major title. And she said, how many majors do you think Andy's going to get? How many is, is, uh, is Roger going to get? Now, of course, Roger's had his first that year at Wimbledon, and Andy's about to win his first. And I said, I think Federer is going to win at least eight and Roddick six. Boy, boy, was I wrong! And and uh, but I really thought at that point that Roger was definitely the better player. He was going to have Andy's measure, but that Andy was going to be in there with him, and that there was going to be a rivalry. And and I under underestimated Roger, and I, I, I tremendously with that remark. But but in any case, here's what I would say to your point, Sakib. Roddick had a, a pretty decent chance the next year at Wimbledon in the 04 final against roger he won the first set made a big hard fought comeback in the second set which he lost but then went up four two in the third and it rained and they came back and he really needed to close out that set with a couple of holes but he lost the set and went on to lose in four that was a missed opportunity i thought because at that stage roger hadn't developed quite the aura that he would and uh, that was a pivotal win for him in the rivalry and then the other thing, obviously, was the 0-9 final that none of us will ever forget that's etched in, in our memories. So, so uh, it just unforgettable. And Roddick, of course, had that chance up a set, leading 6-2 in the tiebreak in the second. And eventually at 6-5, you know, kind of miscalculated miscal- on a backhand volley. So he, he let the tiebreak get away from 6-2. And instead of being two sets up, it's a set all. And he eventually loses it 16-14, that incredible fifth set. And uh, it was a gallant effort from Andy because to, to hang in as well as he did in that fifth set, and it was, it was the last game of the match, the first time he got broken in the, in the match, and heartbreaking loss. But I felt like he should have probably won one of those two, certainly 9 but 4 is too easily forgotten. So I think that, you know, people make the same argument a bit, Saqib, about, say, Sampras and Agassi. Well, whether Sampras hadn't have been there I under... under but I think you need to be able to find a way to put a dent in your arch-rival's arsenal, at least here and there. Get back. It gets back to your remarks, Akib, about Safin saying that about Federer. Oh, I, I'm not on Federer's level. You've beaten him in the semis the Australian. You should feel like at least you can be competitive with him. And I thought Andy could have won a few more of these matches with some luck. It certainly was not through lack of trying. He was a ferocious competitor. Obviously, had one of the great serves of the modern era, uh, limited on his backhand side, although he had a decent backhand slice. And I thought the other thing that hurt him, Sakib, in my view, and he might disagree retros- retrospectively, I don't know, was, and I'd love to know what Mert thinks about this, was that Andy in the, as he was emerging and through that 03 open, he was, you, you, you felt like that forehand was explosive. At least I did. The forehand was an explosive stroke. He could really flatten it out and lace it and hit outright winners. And that as as the years passed, he became a little more conservative and covered it more. And I didn't feel that the forehand was ever as fearsome as it had been in the early years. That's just my opinion. I I know some share it and some might disagree. That also might have made a difference. But I believe in the final analysis, uh, Saqib, that Andy should have won a couple of more majors. And as I say, it was never through lack of fight or not dedicating himself. He was a tremendous professional and carried American tennis on his shoulders. And as you say, that was a big burden to carry because he's following the footsteps of Sampras and Agassi and so much expected of him. And Blake and Fish were not quite up to the task. And Andy, everybody was sort of counting on Andy for all those years. And it couldn't have been easier. But on the other hand, reminds me a bit of Chang. If Michael can get on the board at 17 and win a French, there's a lot of years left to try to add to your major title collection, which he was unable to do. And it's the same with Andy winning the Open at 21. There were so many big years ahead. And I think, you know, and I say this with the utmost respect for for him, that he should have won a couple more. That's just my view.
2: I think it's a brilliant point you made, and if Murd wants to speak, I'll just want to quickly weigh in here. One of my friends, actually, Anand, who Mert knows of, we started this podcast six years ago and he's a big Roddick fan and I was a big Safin fan. So we've joked about these two in a perfect, in a utopian world where there was no Federer. We thought him, uh, Safin, and Hewitt could have had a great three-way rivalry. But we also joked about if Roddick only had somewhat of a Safin backhand and if Safin only had somewhat of a Roddick and Hewitt discipline, you know, you could be looking at legends. I mean, right now they're like very popular players in their own right. The word legend gets overused because if, you know, we call Safin and Roddick legend, then what is Federer? What is Djokovic? (laughs) But the point is, if, you know, both parties had a little bit of what the other had, it could have been a very interesting pre-Nadal years because, uh, you know, Roddick was there. He was part of the equation for a very long time. Marat's level dipped and Hewitt's level dipped due to injuries. But Roddick was, you know, a perennial top tenor, contender at the you know, you're in, uh, you know, participant of the year, year in championships. So, yeah, uh, very consummate professional. Mert, you had something to say but about Roddick? Hey, or-
0: hey, before Mert starts, just let me, I just want to throw in a quick comment. I, I, I'm not going to take too much time on this, Mert, but I think the other thing I would say about Roddick and how things unfolded and transpired, in my view, that was a mistake, but I was not in his shoes making these decisions. So, I don't want to sound presumptuous to say it. But Brad Gilbert came into the picture at Queen's Club in 03, started working with Roddick. He wins Queens. He's in the semis of Wimbledon. He he rolls through the summer and wins the Open. So through that next stretch, he wins five out of seven tournaments, ends the year at number one in 03, which was a, a remarkable accomplishment. And uh, But then at the end of 04, he'd gone to number two by then. He didn't win a major in 04. There was that opportunity at Wimbledon that I mentioned against Federer he he parted ways with Gilbert, and I'm as I say, I wasn't in his shoes. I don't know what the interactions were like. I'm sure he had very good reasons for deciding that it needed to end. But I always felt like if Gilbert would have been around longer, that that also could have been very helpful to 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 Andy Roddick. That's just my view. Mert, who did he, take,
2: who did he go after? Gilbert. Who did he, was his brother for a while, right?
0: The way his brother and there were some other few others that were in there as well. And eventually he got Stefanke, who I thought was great. Yeah, There's that was Stavanky.
2: like 2007 after Jimmy Connors, right?
0: Yeah, Connors came in in 06, right. And yeah. Connors Connors made a difference in 06, helped him. He got to the finals of the Open that year and lost to Federer that year as well. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people that came in. But my point being that his biggest success was during the Gilbert run. And that it would have been nice to see that last a few more years and we'll never know what would have happened, but I felt like he had benefited and that they were a good fit. Yeah. You know, he, he, and I know that having talked to Andy about this, that he had the utmost respect for Brad's knowledge, his know-how, his, his tactical acuity, all of that stuff. So he surely had his reasons and we'll never know, but I, I wish that could have lasted longer.
2: Merk. All right so Mert, uh, should we move ahead or yeah. you have something to add on Roddick?
0: No I just wanted
1: to add just from 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 playing style they, they, and you guys both mentioned it uh, briefly as 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 uh, as you were uh, talking and the, the 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 problem with Roddick is it, it was there was a huge matchup problem with uh, Roddick and Federer too and the Federer loves to play these players who have one hole in their game that that he can just pick on again and again and that Roddick backhand just you know, just gave uh, gave Federer you know a, a, a something to work with. that yeah. And Federer feasts on, on 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 players like this. You know, the Federer doesn't like to play players who who don't really have a lot of weakness. Get get every ball back. They're fast and they make him you know they make him throw the kitchen sink at them in order to beat them. He didn't have to throw the kitchen sink at Roddick most of the time when he beat him. He he just picked on that backhand. He picked on the return. And got the short return and finished it with the, with his with his uh, formidable one-two punch, one of the best pu- one-two punches you'll ever see. Federer has so that there was a matchup problem with Roddick. That being said, it's amazing to me that uh, Roddick put himself in in position to win against Roger in big matches. You know the the Wimbledon final, but also he got close in the 2006 U.S. Open final too. They were one set apiece, and they played a very close third set before uh, before Roger ran away with it in the fourth. They played a really close match that Roddick should have won in the in the in, in the ATP Masters Cup, either two thousand five or six, two, I can't 2006. remember. Yeah, two thousand six that, that I thought yeah. Roddick should have won. And uh but 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 it's just you know when you lose against a player over and over and over again, I mean yeah, you know, his only three wins against uh against Roger came twice in Miami and once in Canadian. He lost yeah. to him every time he had to play him in the majors or year end Masters Cup and, and all other big stages. And I just think that it plays in your head and it, there was a matchup problem there too I, I i do believe that Roddick uh deserves a special mention for how long he lasted you know we just talked about players that just you know pulled a disappearing act or or their careers were were cut short for one reason or another well Roddick was the one guy that that lasted uh for a long time and he stayed at the, at the top of the game for a long time certainly throughout the uh throughout the 2000s and uh, he was he was one of the only ones really who consistently remained as a challenger to the top you know top three or four positions
0: yeah no it's it's absolutely right about the matchup Myrna. all i would say is that he uh i do think the the three wins you mentioned brand Andy are all on hard courts but that andy's best chance should have been on the grass and and that's why i brought up those two wimbledon finals so i just feel like it was less of a less of an impediment in his mind. I think he honestly believes he could do it on the center court too. And and you're right. He deserves high marks for the fact that he made it competitive and there were, there were big issues there because of his backing. But I felt like he, one of those Wimbledon finals, particularly the 09 should have gone his way. And it would have meant a lot to him to add it to, to have been able to look back on a career that was not just one U S open win, but that he had a Wimbledon title to, to add to On the other hand, The reason Andy got in the Hall of Fame, in my view, Mert, is that he did finish a year at number one, which was a great accomplishment, 3 that we talked about. And he led the U.S. to victory in the Davis Cup at 7 He had a magnificent Davis Cup year, and that's too easily forgotten as well. So those two accomplishments of a year-end number one and a Davis Cup title for the U.S., coupled with all the consistency – uh that that got him into the hall of fame i believe deservedly but i would have loved for him that to, to have had a wimbledon and i i don't think he was as say psyched out by the matchup issue and he would wholeheartedly agree with you by the way about the matchup but i don't think it was as much of a issue in his mind when he played those matches against roger at wimbledon as it was elsewhere
1: yes and i nice, so um thanks for mentioning the 2004 final by the way i'm in fact, in my first opportunity that I get, if I have some time, I'll go back and watch that. I, yeah. You're right that that gets overlooked. I, I certainly overlooked it. I, yeah. you know, until you mentioned it, I forgot about it. Yep. Yeah.
2: And I just want to add to what Steve said. Roddick didn't flattening, flatten out the forehand. And I think the Miami wins Mert mentioned, I think, in 2009 and 2011 or 12 uh, when he beat Federer. I think he was just hitting the ball incredibly big. He was not trying to rally from the back. He was just going after that forehand and you know Federer's backhand. And those two wins came there. So, Steve, me and Mert have done a federal retirement special. So I know Mert's early memories. Now let's talk about the man who dominated the decade. Talk about the 2000-2002 phase of Federer. What were your opinions? He was talked about. I'm listening to the Christopher Clary book. There's a very interesting anecdote. Switzerland plays United States. And James Blake is a reserve partner there. And he says to Swiss guys, when he's practicing, he say we have a special player. Andy is going to be the guy who's going to be contending at the world stage. And is it either Huber or the Swiss, Switzerland player says, you know what, we got a pretty special player too. Why don't you check him out? And then when they saw Federer, uh, Clary's book, Blake and others were so impressed that he had so much time to hit these incredible shots. So what is a Steve Flink, Federer recollection in those two years when you were made aware of him? What were your early impressions? And did you expect him? Of course, you said you expected eight majors, which is high praise coming in that era. But talk about those early years before he won the first major. What were your expectations of the man?
0: You know, I my remember thinking I right, two couple of things. I think back on number one, I was there for the Sampras match at Wimbledon that 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 one and only meeting that they had as professionals. Uh, at the 2000 Wimbledon round of sixteen, won by Federer seven five in the fifth. I remember thinking at that time, first of all, that he was going to be a totally different kind of player because he came to the net. I think he served in volley. He he got in there 109 times. He was serving in volley on almost every first serve and a lot of his second. And I remember thinking what how how much fun it was to watch him at that point. And I and I remember thinking
1: how great he was
0: going to be I was a little concerned when he lost to Henman in the quarters but I thought okay that was a very gutsy win because it came all the way down to four all in the fifth Roger is it you know has break points against him at four all and he fended Pete off and won at seven five and I remember thinking I mean I was very impressed I didn't I wasn't thinking anything like that kind of career that he would have but then what a great talent he was and then I watched the Henman match and I watched him all through the period that you're describing Murd. and I I saw some up and down performances I saw more softness I didn't see the quietly ferocious competitor that emerged by from 03 on I wasn't expecting quite that much and I was highly impressed when I saw the sort of the change in his outlook and his demeanor and not that he was uh, high, highly charged to the point of being contentious with officials but you could feel it you could feel that will will to win it was almost tangible that started with 03 wimbledon and 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 never stopped and uh but in the years that you're talking about I just I saw a great talent I saw a player I thought was going to be different that was going to be attacking serving and volleying more and of course he gave that up and he had very good reasons for gave it up he changed it radically and he had good reasons for doing it for just the reasons that Mert mentioned that one two punch of the serve in the forehand he was more comfortable with that in the modern game and felt like he didn't have to serve in volley uh, the way he had and in fact that he was going to be more effective to use that pinpoint serving to set up a short ball off his forehand and then hit the winner or make a strong approach and put away the volley so I feel like he became a different player than I'd anticipated, and I certainly saw a different kind of psyche, psyche uh, from 2003 on than I had seen in the emerging years that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we all know the impact the late Peter Carter had on a young Roger Federer, but while I'm listening to this audiobook by Christoph Clary, and I didn't realize how instrumental those years were when Federer chose Lundgren over Carter, as a traveling coach, and the plan was al- always, they say, to come back to Carter at some point. And they say his death changed Federer forever because he took it so hard. And I don't know. So someone said it was was it like a a doctor who mental, you know, uh, a psychologist who was Federer working with. They said he became a different man. So, Marat, yeah. uh, going back to what you said about Roddick, that Federer feasted on like players who were somewhat one dimensional, and the the slice also gave Marat Safin fits. But look at the larger landscape of ATP and Federer's dominance. Uh, the short backhand chip and the slice—that was a weapon that just, you know, put a lot of pay- uh, players out of the comfort zones. Not named Nadal. So, what do you remember of that that phase when he was winning these incredible matches uh, against Kiefer, against Haas, who name it? Right. He he just made a new sort of domination. We were seeing something new. Uh, talk about the 2004-2007 phase. When he was just, you know, pretty much winning everything except when he was facing the Nadal.
1: Yes, well, well, what you mentioned is, of course, a big factor—the fact that he uh, he was able to come up with any shot in the uh, in the book, really. And uh, you know, I talked earlier about that uh, that uh, a, the Masters Cup match with uh, semifinal with suffin Safin. Uh, that was the second set of that match. Is one of the best sets that I've that that I've ever seen. And in that ma- and in that set, you can see. Roger Federer, you know, trying to find a solution against uh, Marat Safin, who's coming on strong in the second set, after after Federer won the first set, and he's and he starts throwing the kitchen sink at uh, at Safin, and uh, and and sure enough, you, you you see everything from you know backhand short angles to backhand slice uh, uh, cross course that ma- that makes Safin move up and to the outside of the court, and then he moves around and hits an inside in forehand. And he sometimes hits a high topspin, followed by a completely flat acceleration. And his serve is going out wide, or kick to the outside, or or straight down the middle. And it, it's just it, the guy had so many weapons that he could use against many many players. But to me, the biggest difference, and you, and you should you should be able to see that in any footage that you watch from two thousand four two thousand seven era, is his footwork. His footwork is completely out of this world he's reaching uh, uh, and he's you know he had a very strong wrist so he's very quick to get the balls and with his wrist both on the forehand and on the backhand side from a fully stretched arm he's able to come up with angles that 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 you've never seen before and um and frankly that that i haven't really seen since you know with someone who's able to generate that much angle and who can hit a dime on the court from outstretched positions but to be able to do that, you know, throughout your career, you need to keep that footwork. And and eventually, you know, D- 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 Roger's footwork uh, just declined. You know, and as the 2000s came and came to an end, and the 2010s began, but he adjusted. He adjusted his game to to you know to to fit his uh, perhaps uh, lesser footwork, so to speak. And then you know he started cutting points short, taking the balls earlier, and and you know you know he so that he didn't have to no longer. Run for balls to the outside and depend on his baseline prowess to 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 finish points or to come up with shots that uh, that opponents couldn't handle. So the short answer to your question is, I would I would say watch his footwork. It's phenomenal footwork. You can watch that match that I can uh, that I just mentioned, or simply watch two thousand six, two thousand five, and two thousand six Wimbledon finals. You know, he's 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 run He's hitting winners from running positions where he's out on the full stretch and the way he after he hits his he pu- he puts off his uh his uh, his right foot for example on the forehand to recover for the next shot in case it comes back his you know they used to call juan carlos Ferreira the m- mosquito but uh, I would I would argue that Ferreira was even faster than carlos ferrero when when he was a mosquito
2: mm, interesting
0: but Mert, i got a question for you don't you think that for in addition to the the what you're alluding to it with Roger's footwork and what impressed you that also he had an incredible ability to set up for the inside out for him, that the well, footwork sure. was exemplary in, and that that was one of the keys to that shot.
1: You know, Steve, I got a, I got a funny story for you. That kind of touches on what you just said. Um, you know, I'm coaching currently, uh, the, the, a uh, couple of players, uh, one, one particular that I spend a lot of time with, uh, she, she's doing fairly well. And, uh, and and both of the players that uh, that I'm coaching, I, I we try to work on, you know, hitting that slice, short slice to the outside of the court, backhand cross-court slice. That brings the opponent uh, not only to the outside of the court, but also have, makes them reach forward. You know, kind of like that kind of shot where you don't know if you should hit that with a one-handed stretch and then come to the net behind because you find yourself so far in the court. So we're working on that shot. And I keep telling them, this is the Ash Barty shot. You know, Ash Barty made a living off of that shot. You know the the and they keep coming back at me saying no, it's the Roger Federer shot. And uh, <laughs> you know, the, so <laughs> so they uh, you know the, the the this and this touches on what you said. You know that slice, uh, nobody could hit it as 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 good as Roger did. Now there are guys who hit who hit that shot well. Now, not many, very few. Grigor Dimitrov comes to mind. He can hit that yeah. shot. You know that yeah. backhand slice that lands short. And, uh, you know, and Ash Barty would do it in, in the women's. In fact, there was a match that, uh, just to kind of give a short note, there was a match that Ash Barty played against um, Badosa, I think, where this the stat of Bodosa coming to the net was something like six out of 13. And the commentator was making a comment saying, why does she keep coming to the net when she's that unsuccessful? Well, that's because she didn't have a choice. You know, that slice that Federer hit or uh, Barty hit yeah. or Dimitrov hits. You, you're so far inside the court and you're so stretched. That if you try to push that ball in and recover back to the baseline, you're going to be lost anyway. So, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, going back to the original question, I know I went off on a tangent there, but, hmm. uh, you know, these are the kind of shots that uh, that Federer could pull off that would set up his killer forehand, you know, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, 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 he, and if you noticed, it would hit that slice. Roger. And he would already position himself a meter or so to the left of the center hash mark, knowing that in the next shot, he either is going to have to move around and hit an inside-in winner, or he trusted his footwork in case they went down the line to hit a running cross-court forehand winner, which he did most of the time.
2: All right, let me bring Mr. Nadal into the conversation. Steve, early memories of Nadal. Uh, I know he beat Federer in Miami. I missed that match somehow. Uh, I think it was on Tennis Channel. But I did see him lose to Roddick at the '04 4 uh, U.S. Open third round, and he lost six three six zero six four, And I couldn't believe when he tried to fist pump, when he was such a scoreboard deficit he was facing, and Roddick even gave him a look like, what is a fist pump for? I mean, I'm owning you here. But that was typical Nadal, right? Living in the moment, like Maverick says, point-by-point mentality never g- goes away. What are your first memories of... Uh, the man from Majorca, and uh, again, when you saw him first, what you know, follow up is what what kind of over and under you were talking about at that point.
0: Yeah. No, in terms remember, of titles. Yeah. No, I felt like you know, I didn't have a clear number in mind like I had with Federer. I, I felt like he was surely going to win a lot of them, uh, and that he was going to be uh, an, an incredible force on clay. I also remember that you're talking about the Roddick match in the Open, that then in the Davis Cup finals in Spain and he knocks off Andy there, which was such an impressive win. That sold me that he could do that, step up to such a gigantic assignment at that age and handle it with such incredible composure uh, as only maybe Rafa could. So, uh, yeah, I remember watching him a few times. I saw the Roddick match you mentioned. Then, of course, where I was really sold was I watched him lose to Federer after having – it was one of those rare losses for Rafa. Two sets to love and 4-1 up in the third against Roger in the Miami final, and he lost it. He kind of ran out of energy for a while, oddly. It's almost He put so much emotional energy into finishing him off in that third set, which he was unable to do, and then he lost in five. But then I remember watching him beat Roger in the semis of the French and win his first French in 05. And I was sold on him by then. I just felt like I'd watched him dominate that whole Clay court campaign. And I just thought, I, I thought the world of him and his whole, uh, his whole approach to the matches. And, and again, we, we alluded earlier to the negativity of the likes of Rios and and sometimes, but Rafa seemed to always be trying to find an excuse to win. It was never about, uh, you know, uh, feeling sorry for himself, He always found something to be positive about. And and then, of course, you you know, you couldn't help but be impressed by the, the the forehand from the very beginning, and 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 his footwork too. Mert alluding to Rogers, but Rafa's footwork was superb as well. So I, those are my early impressions. And I remember I did not have an. I'll, I'll admit I didn't have a number in mind to keep for majors, but I knew there would. I was convinced there would be many. And I was convinced that he was going to be a thorn in Roger's side, I, 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 especially after he won that semifinal at the French.
2: Yeah. Uh, my second memory is Murray again. I think I might have told you this. I went to the Montreal Masters in 2005. And uh, when Roddick, uh, sorry, uh, Nadal and Agassiz won their semis, Nadal had first said that he wants to play the legend before he retires. And then when Agassi won his semi, they asked him, uh, this is what Nadal said. And Agassi said, Yeah, I also want to play the kid before he retires. So that was like, you know, setting up a generational matchup, which is one of the yeah. best matches I've seen live. It was a electric crowd in, on a rainy Sunday in Montreal. And Nadal got the better for Agassi, I think, in three sets. Uh, so this is a very, Nadal's one guy who's proven many people wrong, especially me, many an occasion. Uh, and I was with that crowd that didn't see him becoming a hard court force As in the beginning, like he was struggling against the likes so of James Blake and Thomas Burdick. What change in his hardcourt playing style and his resume that he not only won, you know, uh, majors, but he won six hardcourt majors and, you know, the stellar career he went on to have and, you know, hopefully he comes back for one more run. But talk about the early two thousand the mid two thousands when he was clearly the best player in the world on play, but he wasn't getting to those Federer matches on the hard court because he was struggling as a hardcore player finding his, to find his game.
1: Yeah, my, my, uh, well, my first memory of, of Nadal is quite embarrassing because uh, I saw him at uh, uh, live for the first time at the 2003 uh, uh, Bastad, Sweden, ATP event. And uh, he played uh, Albert Portas and beat him in straight sets and 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 went to the qu- quarters, where he ended up playing La Pente and uh, had four match points against La Pente and lost seven five in the third. One of the rare matches that he lost in his uh, career from match point up. But uh, what happened during that tournament <laughs> is I was there with my brother, and uh, we're watching this this uh, you know we're watching Carlos Moyá, who was seeded number one in that tournament, play a very young Robin Soderling. And he wins the match and and following the match, you know, we, we go out to walk and the and the setting at Bastad ATP event is beautiful. There's a there's a there's the you know the beach right behind and players walk along the uh, the shore and et cetera. So me and my brother are 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 walking and we and we meet a friend, a Swedish friend, and um and my Swedish friend sees Moya walk towards us with a guy next to him, long haired guy next to him, young, young kid. And uh, and he says, oh, there's there's Carlos Moyá, you know, top seed, top five. Let's let's get a picture with him. So we say, okay. And and he and he literally puts himself next to Moyá and hands the camera to Nadal first. The young kid is Nadal, and then and this is oh, sorry, sorry. And then he hands it over to me, and I take a picture of him with uh, Carlos Moyá, and we all you know we shook the, the Moyá's hand in the in the shuffle, and we just kind of walked away, and nobody paid attention to Rafa. That, you know that was uh, when he was 16, and in Bastad. And then, okay, so I, like I said, he went to the court. So that was the first time. But I, but then the next day, we watched that quarterfinals against Lapenti, and uh, I see the 16-year-old kid who's who's running every single ball down, and not only just running it down, but just ferociously spinning every ball back. And and the forehand was not a force yet, but it was one of the heaviest topspin that uh, that I've seen on 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 clay courts. And uh, and it took Lapenti all of Lapenti's skill. Lapenti La was a guy who also had every bag in his trick, so he had to use every single trick to to pull that match off. But uh, but anyway, so th- that showed uh, what great things were going to come of Nadal. But uh, but then Rafa, I thought, uh, made the transition from you know it didn't it didn't come quickly. Huh? He he suffered a lot of losses in in hard course, early losses before he could get to the finals. Finally, but to me, the biggest difference was. He improved his serve. He tried uh, various techniques on his serve in the late 2000s. Uh, and uh, and he settled on a pretty big first serve that he could place everywhere. But he, not only did he increase the pace of his first serve, but he also would throw in the slice to the outside that did not have as much pace as his other first serve. So, you know, as your opponent who's trying to return, you're getting a different look every time uh, he's already left-handed, which is which kind of causes problems. But then you would get different looks, which would then make his second shot a little bit easier. So he actually developed a pretty good one-two punch himself as the the years went on, and he became a better hardcourt player. Uh, But I always thought he had pretty good touch at the net. So when he had his opponent on the run, he could come up to the net and finish the point, but I would I would start with the serve as to why um, you know he's he got better and better on hardcores as the years went on. But it wasn't until late uh, late two thousands that he became a true force, you know, in in on hardcores. A lot of times he lost, uh, he, he suffered some losses on hard I, I I I actually thought that he adjusted the grass courts a lot faster than I thought, and uh, and and did well, you know, at Wimbledon. But I feel like, um, you know, uh, going back to the original question, I'm I'm like you, Saki, but I, I did not think when it first started that he would uh, he would be a he would be this big a force on surfaces other than clay. You know, he's got as many uh, hard court and grass slam titles as some of the players in the past that we call greats on grass or hard courts. So um, you know, my hats yeah. off to uh, to him and and his and his whole career. I think his career can be can be summarized by saying he just kept winning matches he had no business of winning, you know. And and even the two as late as the 2022 Australian Open final against Medvedev, you know, that's a microcosm of his of, of his career. So how many matches has he won where you thought he was down and out and he just comes back and wins? And uh, I would, but but you know, I, I think his biggest weapon though is uh, is his uh, heart, his heart, his fighting power, more than anything else.
2: No, it's incredible, and Steve's gonna, I think, bring you know a lot of uh, nuance here as well in the Federer Nadal rivalry because that dominated the second part of the decade. But I remember him. but right? It's kind of bizarre. Federer's the best player in the world. Nadal beats him in the Dubai final, which was like one of the fastest hard courts, two six six four six four. But then he's struggling against like Blake's and the Soderlings because his hard court evolution was a bit. It took a bit longer than you're right. The grass code evolution because grass he made. You know, three Wimbledon finals before he won his first U.S. Open or uh, Australian Open final. So, Steve, again, uh, we're talking about Nadal's hard court evolution, and it came slightly slowly compared to what he was able to do on grass. What are your recollections of the mid two thousands, when you know he started making his move towards the number one ranking because he was doing things on clay that you know no one had done since maybe beyond Borg?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I remember, I, I. I see it pretty much the way that the two of you have, are, have already sized it up. I would say this, uh, that period of Wimbledon was fascinating because he, I think surprised himself a little bit by getting to that first final in 06. And I think he was thrilled and he didn't really go into that match, believing he could beat Roger. And he managed to steal a set, did a good job to win a set and lost in four. Then the next year he probably should have beaten Roger. It was, and he had a, lots of break points early in the fifth set of that match, and Roger then served too too well the rest of the way and won it in five. And then Rafa, that's the famous match where he was shattered afterwards, and Uncle Tony was trying to console him because Rafa was just so distraught about losing that match. And then by a year later, by 08, he wins the epic from Roger in the final. So we saw steady progression on the grass. You already alluded to the win over Roger on the hard in 06. I, I felt like it was gonna come, but he definitely was vulnerable as as Mert mentioned. And I remember watching him get blown out by Blake at the US Open. There were times on hard courts he could he could be beaten in almost devastating fashion and blown off the court by big hitters. But that really did change. And I don't know. I thought he could have won the, the he might have won the US Open sooner than he did. I thought he should was good enough to win it in 08, frankly. But what had happened is he'd won the French. He beat Roger 1-3 in love in the French and then won the epic at Wimbledon and then went to the Olympics over the summer. By the time he got to the – and won it, won the gold, came to New York a bit mentally exhausted and eventually lost to Andy Murray in the semis. If he gets by Murray, he plays Federer in the final, who's just lost the two previous majors against him and who's about to lose the next one in Australia at the start of 09. And I don't think Roger would have enjoyed having to play – uh, Rafa, even though he might have liked his chances on hard courts, we'll never know. But I felt like th- that that progress might have happened a bit sooner because Ra- Rafa did win on hard courts at the Olympics that summer. So he was getting there. By 08, he was definitely getting there. And But to get back to Mert's point, to think that Raphael could come, who knew he had to make who knew he had his work cut out for him as a hardcore player, would end up right now, but he never wins another one with four U.S. Open titles, as many as Novak and and two Australian as well. It's a remarkable achievement for him to go along with his two Wimbledon. So uh, he certainly more than demonstrated, you know, his his all-surface mastery and the way that he was able to alter his game to meet the needs of those surfaces. For
1: sure. Right, so just to... Saki, so, if i could add just a couple of things on the, you know the steve mentioned the 2006 wimbledon final and uh you know that was a that was a kind of a key matchup in their rivalry i thought uh in the sense that if roger did not win that match with, with rafa getting to the final without even expecting it himself as uh, as steve said uh that would have been devastating for roger too and uh you know he was six and one he he was losing just about on everything to uh, on every surface to uh, you know on hard and clay to to Nadal in their first six matchups or so i think he, outside of that miami uh, comeback win but uh, but then then finally I, in 2006 beating R- rafa even though rafa was very young was a huge relief for uh, for roger because then he did well against him for the next couple of years if you combine surfaces outside of clay when they played each other he did fairly well against them, but uh, but th- there was a huge matchup problem there. You know, we just talked about Roddick and and Federer, and Rafa did cut two two specific things that just gave Federer fits. And one was his topspin carried more height and weight onto Roger's one-handed backhand than than anyone else's because Rafa just hit with more topspin, and it would just break it would just break Federer's uh, backhand down. This is no secret; but just about every uh, analyst mentioned this. And the other one was his serve, especially on the ad court to the outside, which made Federer stretch out and hit the slice return. And yeah. Rafa had Rafa had the, had a feast on slices. You know, he was one guy that that was not bothered by the opponent's slice. He could just get under it and flick the wrist and hit winners off of uh, off of low slices. And uh, and that you know that caused problems for Roger. He would constantly get that defensive return, and he would just start running Roger around. And uh, and and would win matches for over and over again in the same fashion. Uh, I'm uh, you know I'm a little bit uh, surprised that it took Roger until 2014 and 2015 to figure out that these are the two things that uh, that he needs to really work on. And from there, from that point on, you don't see him slice hardly any backhand returns at all in in uh, in, in in their big matches. And uh, and that's why Roger finished strong his career against Nadal in uh, in terms of head-to-head record. You know, in their last. Uh, six or seven matches from two thousand fourteen and fifteen on. And that that was one thing that they worked on coming over the top on the backhand returns, him and Edberg on the on the off season. And he started going for his backhands too, even if Rafa, you know, would topspin heavy to his backhand, he would just rip his backhand off at the cost of missing some of them. But he did not stay engaged in those rallies. And uh, that's one of the reasons why, you know, he had success at the end of his career towards the, the Yeah, that Hidal- was
0: that was that's it was so remarkable, Mur six of the last seven times, starting with basil in fifteen. and especially that that period in seventeen was was astounding where where Roger came uh from three one down in the fifth to beat Ra in the Australian final, and then he ends up killing him in Indian Wells, beating him badly in Miami without losing a set in either, beats him in China late in the year, so four wins that year and then. Then he added that Wimbledon 19 semi as well, it was a fairly clear-cut four-set win for for Roger after losing to Rafa at the French. So it was amazing that it ended up 24-16. When you think of the early years that we're concentrating on when Rafa was so dominant on on all, really all the surfaces except grass against Roger.
1: You know, the one match, uh, Steve, that that I thought Roger did did uh, try to maybe you know overcome these problems were the Rome. Was the Rome 2006 final, and yeah. uh, and yeah. I thought that put a big dent in uh, on in the rivalry on Roger's side to lose that match. You know, yeah. It did. He- oh,
0: you're you're so right. You're so yeah. right because then Rafa came back and beat Roger in the French final after losing the first set 6-1. But the Rome result in the back of both of their minds was very very uh, significant. You're absolutely right.
2: Yeah, a lot of Federer fans believe again. You know. That match uh, stayed in a while uh, in his Fedor's mind, and it could have had, you know, maybe it could have broken him uh, from from the Nadal shackles, right? Like Nadal had him uh, tactically, right? So I think that was a brilliant match and still had nothing to show for it.
0: Well, well it's sorry five to- hours and 12, you know, over five hours of, of, battle, of battle and a couple of match points for Roger, missed four hands, one of them a little easier than the other, but. And then after all that, Rafa comes from five three down in the tiebreak in that Rome final to win the last four points. And,
2: and one of them it, was on a second serve, right? Steve? the missed forehand. That, one of the missed forehands was on a second serve, right?
1: I don't. The you know, miss. Yes. No? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. But you know, he, he he went for both of them and he missed them. He didn't really come close on either, and he still gave himself that additional chance in the tiebreak. But but it was definitely a a it was a and, it was a bruising loss for. For Roger, Rafa could have recovered from that, but for Roger, that was that made a big difference because it would have been a huge clay court win for him. And outside of the their epics in the four majors, it was probably the best match they ever played against each other.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Personally, I think it's the best match I've ever seen. I would, you know, in terms of tennis quality, I, I put that above uh, even the 2008 Wimbledon final. I thought that you know Roger going for five hours on clay winners against Rafa and almost. Pulling it off, you know, it came down to those two forehands, and I thought he played, he did the right thing by going for those two forehands. He missed them, but you know that that was the that was the right thing to do. But it was, a crazy, it was a crazy, it was a
0: great, it was a crazy match mark because you yeah, know, he uh,
1: was up four one in set, the fifth. He won the fourth. He came strong to win the
0: fourth and go up four one to break in the fifth, and he couldn't make that count either. So yeah. you saw yeah. that you saw them, you, the, you saw the different junctures in that match where the doubts were were seeping into roger when you thought he might have control
1: yes and and you know going back to what i was saying about their rivalry too you know after that 2006 wimbledon when he did fairly well against nadal for a couple of years you know on surface outside of clay and it feels like it had he won that match he might have gotten over the hump of of beating nadal on clay too but he didn't and uh well you know, that, that just left a dent
0: i still remember hearing this story about heading into the 08 open where Roger had lost, where he's come off those that devastating loss at Wimbledon to Rafa and then the the drubbing he took at the French and someone asked Roger apparently uh, someone asked somebody very close to Roger what do you how is Roger feeling about the open this year and there was during the week leading up to it and and the person said oh I think it was actually Mary Joe Fernandez he's got he's got no chance no chance. He has zero confidence right now. So that's why I say it would have been so interesting had they met in the final. If, if Rafa could have gotten out of the Andy Murray match, how that would have all played out. But uh, listen, I, I don't. I don't think that, Mert, that anybody would have anticipated. And you're you're right for. I think you're largely right about the reason for it being that backhand ad court return off the slice serve. But I don't think anybody would have anticipated that. Roger would come back to win 6 of the la- I mean this is at a stage when Novak is is dominating Roger but that but now Roger is getting back at Rafa and having you know some a little psychic a little satisfaction not not vengeful but just pro- professional pride that he could manage to to at the latter stages of the rivalry have that much success against him and have the only loss be on a very windy day at Roland Garros in the semifinals in 19
1: I think we and watched Mert, that together, Steve. You we
0: know. did. Yes. We did.
2: Yes, we did. <laughs> and Murt was sending text in our DM group that Federer is playing really good, that this could be his best chance against Nadal. He had everyone thinking, wow, they're going to play a blinder of a match, but then the wins had another idea. And, oh, and yeah. Federer is a, a good and win player, but you know, you can't uh, play Nadal. So Nadal. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I'm saying. Nadal's as good or maybe even a better win player.
0: Yeah, Nadal, yeah, Nadal is, is tremendous in the win, and that those were the worst possible conditions for Roger to confront him. But then, obviously, a month later, he, he avenged it at Wimbledon, and, and, and I, many people were anticipating at that point that we would get a Rafa Novak final there. And I think that was a very uh, rewarding win for Roger. Uh, you, I, it's about as happy as I saw him look in those years after he beat Rafa in that semi at Wimbledon.
2: That was very so they, reminiscent of Becker Agassi '95 in my mind, and then yeah, you know, Sampras Sam, yeah, was waiting in the Paris. final.
0: <laughs> yeah, very. Because of course, yeah, Boris of course had gone all the way from the Davis Cup in '89, the summer of '89, all the way up until that Wimbledon semi, and had not beaten Andre, and and that that shocked a lot of people, particularly after he's at down a set and four one two breaks, he's down six two four one double break in the second set, and he wins. Uh, He he comes back and beats Andre in four sets before losing to Pete in the final.
2: Good analogy. I like that. Murd must be thinking it took Sakib ninety minutes to get Becker mentioned in a podcast, which he had no business, you know, mentioning him. Well,
1: no, you know, I can't, I can't blame you, Sakib, because you want to talk about the two thousands, and me and Steve keep going off to to two thousand Yeah, and, like that. So
0: but, keep, We're we're getting off track. Bring us back to the two thousands. Yeah. Right, so, but ben, uh, can so, I
1: bring you? Can I bring one point in back that'll bring sure. us back to the two thousand? Because we talked about unfulfilled potential, um, you know, earlier in the show. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I wanted to get Steve's opinion on the, on, a, on a on a couple of guys. You know, one of them, you know, for being Mark Philippoussis, who you know it reached he reached the final of two thousand three. And I've talked to several coaches who were active back then, and they all claim that uh, I mean, I, and and not that I disagree, that Philippoussis was the biggest hitter they've seen, and you know, in the early two thousands at that time. His serve and his forehands were bombs and that uh, many players just had trouble. Some players forget about getting the ball back. Sometimes, you know, players who would come to the net to his forehand would have trouble just getting out of the way, not to get hit by the, you know, by the forehand that uh, that Filipuz is sitting. But yet, you know, he after that, uh, reaching the final of Wimbledon 2003, he has a horrible 2004 on and off the court. You know, his knees were problematic too and And he never recovers, and another guy that I wanted to mention who I thought was also unfulfilled uh, career is Guillermo Correa, who had the, probably the strangest case of decline due to double faults and 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 mental uh mental problems that caused you know his double fault problems he just he he was serving fifteen twenty double faults uh sometimes in matches that that he just could not get over talked to a psychologist and and his career ended two or three years soon after uh, after his best year and uh, you know the just to add two more to the tally of uh, players that uh, that we we mentioned before and if uh, if steve you have any insight to you know to those two players i would appreciate it because i thought philipous could have done more had he not you know had he remained uh, healthy in at least on yeah. hard courts and on grass
0: yeah let's start with coria i mean yeah you're right double fault itis didn't help nor nor did losing that French file and it was just devastating. And Completely. he lost and that was his chance to pocket a major. And he'd had these epic clay court contests with Rafa going that he played in those years. And he was next to Rafa. He was probably the most gift, probably the best clay court player of that particular period. Agreed. And so that was devastating. I'm sorry he didn't get that French and that would have made a big difference if that was the only one he ever got, it still would have been a valued prize and he he didn't, pull it off Philip I don't know Mert I agree I agree with all that stuff the power was he was devastatingly potent off the ground the serve was 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 just fantastic and he had a pretty good temperament he didn't not much bothered him out there I think he competed well but I felt like the chances that he got I don't know the young Roger was just was still just a little too good for him he lost to Raptor in the U.S. Open final and Raptor was a better player and I I wish he could have pulled off one big one somewhere along the line, but I I I don't know. I I felt like he he may, maybe he did the best he could with what he had, and even as as overpowering as he could be, that the best players were just a little too tough for him.
1: But would you would you say that had had? I mean, I guess I'm I'm thinking had his career not been cut short by injury oh, yeah. in the later more mature years would he have gotten one more chance or two more chances and done better you know kind of like the the, the chance that Goran Ivanisevic got you know when yeah, he was a much I more agree. mature I player
0: totally agree with that yeah no if he could have had a Goran moment yes he would have taken it he would have taken it but I mean that's been one of the themes of our talk today is we, we don't talk enough about it probably is what, what injuries do to players. And they, and most of them are so they're such commendable professionals and they don't want to be whining all the time and talking about it or even giving away that news to their opponents, but they're constantly battling their bodies. And I've always said, Mert, that it, to me, in essence, tennis is a contact sport because it, it, every part of the, the knees, the wrists, the shoulders, so many things they're susceptible in so many ways, their ankles and the physicality of the game has only been compounded in recent years. And the, these punishing rallies one after another, because the strings are so good these days. Be, that, I mean, players, I remember I guess saying, you know, at one point, "Well, these strings now you can't miss, I don't care how hard you swing. You can't, you can't hit a ball. Well, it, look what it's done to their bodies. So I don't think we can ever underestimate that. And you're, you're so right to point it out in the case of Villapuza. So I don't want to diminish him. I just mean the ones that he had, the chances that he did have in, 08, in, in 98 and 03 and losing to Rafter and losing to uh, to uh, Roger, I wouldn't be too critical of him. I felt like in those occasions, he just got outplayed. But no doubt, if he had a Gorin opening like that, he like Gorin, he would have taken it.
2: Yeah, And And, and I would like to just say something, too, I think, to Mert's point. Philippus is slightly older than these guys like Safin and Federer. So he had his injuries spanning from late 90s to early 2000s. You know, he, in the 99 Wimbledon quarters against Sampras, he was up a set. There was no way that was riding on the wall, but he was looking dominant. That was one of the very few sets I remember watching Sampras when Sampras, for the short period, looked like the second best player. It didn't happen a lot. And then uh, in 2003, he came back after a big injury, so that was more like a comeback trail. And then he just had Federer, you know, who was trying to make his move. But I would also say, Mert, maybe I'm out of my depth here because you know no, you no, are no, a coach. No, no, no
0: Mert, I'm going to interrupt, Mert. Yes, uh, yes, please do. I, I want that. I want when when this show is heard by the listeners, Saki you edit that line out. You are not out of your depth with anyone, no, you know. nobody. No, no, I,
2: out of my depth, what about, I was about to say is, to me, <laughs> Filipousis is like Melo Raonic. They're like a big unit. Their bodies are not for tennis. They're like great players, but there's a reason, you know, with all the help and all the medicine and all the recovery, they kept getting injured, right? Of course, there's a Kenishikori who gets injured who's probably a very smaller frame. But yeah. Filipousis and Raonic just remind me of each other so much. Every time they gain momentum, uh, a career derailing injury comes knocking, and it's just... A very frustrating what their careers could have been if they had played like five, six years uninterrupted. So uh, not sure like if their injuries were, you know, same or similar in nature. Mm-hmm. But is against Schalken at the US Open in 2002 and then 99 against Sampras. I mean, there's so many occasions, you know, where Erotic or like uh, someone else, uh, that name comes to mind, who pretty much played a career injury-free, so you don't know. And throw Safin in there, too, for those two injuries and wrist injury and then the knee injury, what their careers would have been if there was an uninterrupted flow of, like, five, six years. And then, because it's very difficult to stop and start. You know, not everybody can come back from these injuries like some other players have.
1: You know, the Philippuses, and, you know, we already mentioned Safin. Uh, you know, we talked about Rios. Tommy Haas. Guga. Uh, and uh, and uh, Magnus Norman, you know, I'd, it's amazing that Roger and Rafa's rivalry was so brilliant that it overshadowed the 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 fact that we could you know we could have had even a better de- decade that uh, you know in the 2000s these guys just had to battle injuries as Steve pointed out and and it's 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 the reality of the tour you know it I felt like 2000s talent level was very high but yet you know you look at the 2010s guys like Tomas Berdych. David Ferrer, Songa hung around and kept, you know, stayed in top 10 and kept pushing, kept pushing, you know, stole a win here and there against the the big three. They could never, uh, you know, break the dominance of the big three, but they hung around. And we did not have that in the 2000s outside of uh, Andy Roddick and maybe Leighton Hewitt. And we, we just did not have that. We had flashes of brilliance by these guys and they did well when that happened, like Marit Safin in 2000 at the end of 2004 and beginning 2005 at the Australian open. But uh, I just wish that we could have had consistency of seven of eight years of top level play by these guys like Nalbandian and Safin and, uh, you know, could have if Guga could have given us another four or five years without injury or Norman, you know, had could have had a great career and was cut short, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just, Uh, That's 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 what comes to my mind for the decade of 2000s. Every time I think about it, second, of course, it comes into my mind second nature to Roger and Rafa's uh, rivalry.
2: So I'm going to keep you guys for ten more minutes, max. Two more questions.
0: Quick thing, just a quick thing to keep to just tack on to what uh, Emert was just saying. Yes, Roger and Rafa, and they they were the decade. They were tennis in that decade. But it was also we shouldn't ignore the emergence of Djokovic at the end of the decades. That was
2: my question, Steve. You read my mind. I was going to say, you know, let's give a preview of the things to come. Novak Djokovic has entered the scene in 2007, Miami and Indian Wells, and then the incredible run in Montreal. And then tennis has a new presence. So what are your early memories of Djokovic? Mine is him losing to Safin in Australia, first round, and they both were wearing similar kits. And it was a very physically entertaining match, long rallies with Safin... Was a much developed and stronger player. He won that match 1, 2, and 1. And but I started following Djokovic. So who is this guy? I mean, how is he playing so good? And how come I don't know of him? So what is your early memory of Steve? When did you first spot Novak Djokovic?
0: Well, I playing Rafa at the 06 French. I remember, you know, he retired after a couple of sets. And you know it, it, that happened in those years to him. He had little things going wrong like that, and he would retire. And it happened against Roddick in Australia once. And th- those formative years were tough for him. And he was trying. You know, he wasn't. He hadn't acquired the same level of professionalism and how to how to care for himself and his body. And and he wasn't as mentally tough. There were a lot of things that happened in those years, but I remember being struck by the comedy made after the nadal he's lost like four and four to Rafa before he retired and he's like i was right in there with him i thought i was out playing him you know he was he sounded you know it sounded cocky but then when we thought back on it a year later we realized where where it came from and because by then we were seeing by 07, we were seeing just how good he was and you just alluded to a lot of it there with indian wells in miami and beating Rafa in miami and that great Canada where he knocked off all those guys and beat Roger in the final and in a very memorable final that, that led many of us to believe, Saqib, that he was going to win the 2000 U.S. Open. And what happened is Federer won that 2007 U.S. Open final on experience because uh, Fe, uh, Djokovic served for the first set, had six 5 40 love, five set points and lost it and lost a breaker. Had two more set points in the second set that he didn't convert, and he ended up losing six, six, and four. So that to me was Rogers' composure and confidence based on the incredible four years that he was now completing at the Slams, where he's winning 11 of the 16 majors in those four years uh, 04, 5, 6, and 7. But I felt like Djokovic was already good enough, and sure enough, by early 08, then he wins the Australian. And he beat Federer in the semis and won it over Sanga. So I just remember feeling, I was very impressed. I thought it seemed like a cocky comment to say that about Rafa when you play (laughs) losing to him at Roland Garros like that. But then I remember thinking back on that the next year and saying, now I kind of get why he sounded so confident and so sure of himself. Because he has the goods to back it up. I also remember about that period to keep that I I thought that he brought a lot of personality to the game Roger and Rafa were very dignified always and carried themselves like true champions Novak had a different style and more of a spontaneity to him that I think was good for the sport and I always remember those impersonations he did at the U- 2007 U.S. Open after the quarterfinals they did a long he did a long one on television and imitated invitated Sharapova and Rafa and others and the crowds absolutely loved it. And he just brought a certain exuberance. And obviously then his personality changed and so he, he adapted through the years and he became more and more deadly serious about what he was doing. And, but I felt like it was refreshing and good that we had a, a different type of personality and the trio was now completed and they all brought something different to the arena. But I, 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 I remember, I also remember just feeling from very early on, Sakib, that Djokovic had an incredible return. The hand-eye coordination was extraordinary. And I remember being struck by that very early on and and feeling like he, he can't miss. But the pro- I also remember thinking, and I want to get Mert's thoughts on this, is that th- there was going to be a problem getting through the other two. He, yes, he was starting to beat them sometimes, but could he do it consistently? And he wasn't able to do it consistently in the early years, which is why he was down at one stage I think, 13-6 to, to uh, Roger, and he ended up winning that robbery 27-23. He was down 16-7 against Rafa, and he's now up 30-29. It took so much for him to overcome the number of hard losses he had against both uh, Federer and Nadal, but he did. He did it, and he did it quite remarkably.
1: Now, Steve summar, Steve uh, summarized it very well. I, I don't have much to add, except, you know, we we just, in 2007, 2008, in 2009, you know, you kept on seeing uh, these wins that uh, Novak Djokovic was accumulating over, over top players. You know, I, I don't know why, but I specifically remember the three-set win he had against Roger in 2009 in Basel, for example. And, yeah. of course, he wins the Australian Open in uh uh, for for his first slam, but uh, but you know, but even then, since we are strictly talk, trying to talk about two let's let's say, yeah, as the two thousands ended, I still did not believe, uh, or I still, you know, I still would not have guessed not did not that did not believe, but I still would not have guessed the kind of dominance that Novak Djokovic put forth from two thousand eleven on, because he didn't have a particularly great uh, two thousand ten. Uh, necessarily, but uh, you know, I, for for me, the big three, the big three era really begins at, at, in 2011. You know, and you could make a case, for example, in 2009, 2010, that Tomas berdich was going to be a a force. Also, you know, he he runs. He had he had that great run at Wimbledon, yeah. beating uh, Roger, beating uh, Novak in the yes. semis, yes. and then loses to Rafa in the finals. You know, you could have easily made a case for Tomas to. To challenge the t- the top spots at that time, so uh, you know I think it, it, it's 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 in 2011 that the uh, that uh, that the big three gets really completed uh, up to the last uh, piece of the puzzle, and actually becomes from there on Novak becomes the leading uh, um, the leading player in the big three for you know throughout the decades of the 2010s.
0: Yeah, Mert, you're, you're great stuff. I. I... I would only say that, no doubt, that 2011 changed everything, and that's when Novak won the three of the four majors, and his only loss of the majors was to Rodgers.
1: Steve, hardly anyone, sorry to interrupt you, hardly anyone believed at that time, 2008-2009, that Novak may win a few more majors, but that he was not going to win Wimbledon. For some reason, people didn't believe. That Novak could do well on grass course. That's just a little anecdote yeah, no. that I to throw him.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think they everybody underestimated, him, but of course his serve wasn't nearly as good back then either. There, there were there were reasons, but I'm just saying that one of the things that led to 2011 was that he had a very important win, I think, over Roger in the semis of the U.S. Open in 2010 from double match point down, which he replicated the next year. And even though he lost the final to Rafa, and that was one of Rafa's best years, 2010, when he won three of the four majors. So Novak took something away from the Roger win because he'd lost to Roger there three years in a row at Flushing Meadows. And secondly, then they won the Davis Cup, Serbia, at the end of the year. So that sort of set the stage for 2011 and all the heroics of Djokovic. And uh, I, I think those two moments, the U.S. Open getting to the final, Leading Serbia to victory in the Davis Cup, that then he now he now believed and it carried him into 2011. But you're right, Mark. Nobody would, and I'm not even sure that he would have thought it uh, either necessarily. He w- he was still confident, and he. But I don't think he would have believed what was going to unfold from 2011 through 2023.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the. Uh, you know, the, uh, you mentioned the very good point. You made a very good point about his serve. I mean, it, you know, the 2008, 2009, 2010. Those are the years where his serve was almost a liability. There were many matches yeah. where he'd serve more double faults than right. Than, right. than he would he would hit he would hit aces. Who would have thought that now his serve is uh, excellent, you know, one of the excellent. one of the best yeah. serves. Oh, you're
0: right. Uh, again, and that took different stages and uh, Todd Martin was trying to tamper it with him when he was coaching him and he went through a, a, an evolution there, but but from I would say certainly from say well it got it was a lot better by 11 but i i would say especially from 2014 15 on it just got better and better and then i th- i do believe Mert that uh, even Isovich coming into the picture in 2019 to coach him that that, that it 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 reached maybe another level of improvement yes. okay
2: yeah that's a good preview for our next episode in 6 months when we'll talk about 2010s. Uh, you guys went a little bit ahead but you know that's uh, worth exploring when we talk again so if if we go back to 2000, Steve, uh, you did mention Djokovic's personality. My favorite moment of or one of the favorite moments is when Djokovic was carrying few niggles coming into the quarterfinals against Roddick. And then he beats him in a night match and gives it back to Roddick and the crowd. And nobody took right. it kindly. Right. So, and they probably even had a minor altercation or maybe you know, exchanged some words in the, in the locker room. And they both have made peace since then. But uh, that showed you know, a lot key. of personality. Right. That was that reminded me of a young Becker, like you know, trying to be sarcastic to the crowd, to a to a local hero. He just said, "Yeah, well, I'm I'm having so many injuries." And Mur, do you remember that? Yes, oh, beat, right. yeah, that was that was a classic moment that set the scene. What Djokovic is going to be? You know, he's not going to back down for many challenges. So that's a special memory for me from that match.
0: Yeah, I I remember that, but I also remember. That by the time Roddick came in and did his press conference, that that I think they had already straightened it out. You could tell Roddick, you know, he made some comments, but then it, they quickly resolved it. I think, and I, it, you know, I I I I remember feeling kind of badly for both. I don't think either one of them really welcomed this incident, but they got they got past it very very quickly.
2: Yeah, only thing I would say is again, you know, like you're right in those high-pressure competitive moments, sometimes all these guys can take back what they said. But I think uh, Djokovic just showed some you know, the character. Like, you know, because a lot of times we live in this ESPN generation and it's an American crowd. Of course, I'm an American too. I don't want to isolate myself there. But what Roddick said was a bit of a trash talk trying to play some mind games. But Djokovic, you know, not only his racket spoke, he didn't mince any feelings that he felt Roddick singled him out. So too he bad, did, too did. bad, because they made up like, they, it could have been a better, you know, feisty rivalry, have, had the trash talk and, you know, some of that carried forward because sometime in the Federer-Nadal era, the bromance and, you know, the the lovey-dovey nature was too much because I'm more from the Becker, Lendl, and McEnroe era where, you know, no words are minced. Sometimes it's good to give a little payback here and there so fans take away. Of course, yeah, Djokovic not- became more focused Later on, like you said, and became such an elder statesman now. But Federer Nadal was sometime in Murray, I think there was like a little too much niceness going on. You know, I, I don't mind when players go have a little bit of a go at each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And you got it there. You definitely got it there. It's just that I think Roddick had said those things mainly in advance of the match. And then he respected the fact that Novak had gone out there and taken and beaten him soundly. And, uh, so I felt like by after the match, and and and, and I must say, I, I, I hear you on one level, I, I agree. It's good for the game to have a certain amount of tension here here and there between players. But I, I also don't mind the idea of guys understanding each other better and moving past it. And you hear how much Roddick respects Djokovic these days every time he talks about him on Tennis Channel. And it was a nice moment that he was there. Sakeep, to uh, to give uh, Novak at the presentation ceremony when Djokovic won his 24th major at the Open five weeks ago or whatever it was.
2: No, great. Roddick is as articulate a speaker there has been recently. So, yeah, he's he's all class. But, uh, yeah, as far as competition, like I like the Medvedev-Sitsipas rivalry because there's no love lost there. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah. you know, it's good. And I also like yeah. the Federer-Nadal, like friendship or bromance or rivalry, whatever they call it. But there yeah. has to be a bit of a mixture. So... Yeah. So, Mert, I'm going to start with you and and Steve, go back. This is not out of the syllabus. When we look at the decade of 2000, it's changed. It became the PlayStation Tennis, the incredible rallies. All these guys, Federer, Nadal, Nalbandian, Safin, Djokovic, Murray, Ferrer. It became a theater like we hadn't witnessed. So are there some matches throughout the calendar at ATP level and slam level that stood out? I'm going to throw some nominees from my end. For me, the kickstart is the agassi Safin 2004 Australian Open semis. Because I remember Patrick McEnroe earlier in the first set said he hadn't seen that kind of ball striking up till then. Because they were like, they don't move like Agassi-Nadal and Djokovic, but they were just bludgeoning the ball. Safin was playing incredible, Agassi was the man to beat, and they were just exchanging blows, body blows. And then there's a Nadal-Verdasco match at the Australian Open. Then there's a Nadal-Djokovic match in Madrid, Federer-Nadal match. In Rome, Federer-Rodd match at Wimbledon, federer with semis, uh, you know. So, are there any matches that kind of shaped your imagination and you guys took a pause and say, "Okay, I haven't seen this," and then it, something happened very soon, something similar. So, Smurd, you can go first. Some memories of the decade doesn't have to be the big three match, wherever match that just captured your imagination. Yeah, and you, you said, mentioned okay.
1: you mentioned a few of them, but the one match that I'll never forget is the. 2003 Australian Open quarterfinal Andy Roddick vs Eli Naohi and uh it went to 21-19 in the fifth set if i'm if i'm correct or 2018 in the fifth set and um, you know some may claim that match lasted all day and there were couple of couple of moments more than one more than one for sure where both players were diving simultaneously for balls and they had scrapes on their knees and and, el- and elbows and and Roddick won that match, 21-19 in the fifth, and uh, and he never recovered against, uh, you know, physically for his semifinal match against Reiner Schüttler, and uh, and I think Schüttler making it to the finals to play Agassi that year was a was a very unlikely scenario that only took place because of uh, because how how exhausted Roddick was after that uh, that particular match against Yunus uh, Eli, Eli Naui uh the other one that i that i remember that you that, that did, i'm not sure that you mentioned that you know sampras beating agassi 67767676 in the 2001 us open quarterfinals and um and then you know one match that i um that uh, that that i thought was was a, was a fairly high level match of two hard hitters was the 2005 was it a quarterfinal or a semi quarterfinal i think when agassi beat blake Seven, yep, six, five. And the fifth
2: quarters. Quarters, yeah. yeah. So yes. you
1: know th- th- those those I thought were uh, were excellent matches, and you know one final, and I think it was two thousand two Masters Cup when uh, Leighton Hewitt beat uh, Ferrero in five sets. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that. that was a great match too. Sydney. So anyway, though, you know those are the ones that come to my mind. I I had a couple already written down on my notes, but I just remembered the one with Roddick and Uniseleinowie and uh, and Federer. Saf in, in two
2: thousand five Australia is pretty good too. But forgot, you mentioned that one, mention right. It. No, I mentioned Federer. Uh, I mentioned safin Agassiz. Oh,
1: no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. In terms of tennis quality, you know, level goals, I would put that uh, Safin-Federer match right up there, you know, in my top five, along with the 2008 Wimbledon final and 2006 Rome final. And even 2005 Rome final between Corey and Nadal.
2: And Nadal-Berdasco is another match that gets talked about a lot. Yes, but I'm Steve. sure
0: Steve
1: will pull out something from the hat here. No, you know, this, did not mention. have stolen
0: both of you've stolen everything I would have brought. Now, Wait, Tom, what about
1: what about the 2001 Wimbledon final, Ivanisevic beating Rafter?
0: Yeah, to me that one. You know what, Mert? Atmosphere-wise,
1: not uh, quality-wise, yeah. but yeah,
0: like you just alluded to it with Federer and Savinus, it was a superb quality throughout, high-level tennis. I didn't feel like, and I don't think Gorin believes it either. Gorin is gratified that he beat Raptor, but there was a little bit, of, there was a fluctuating level of play there, a little bit up and down from both, and they were nervous and understandably so. That one, as a, for suspense and entertainment, you couldn't beat it, but not for, yes. for, level, for level you could. You're right. Mert, Mert referred to the match, one of the matches that I would definitely want to bring up, and it's we didn't get to it when we were talking about Pete at the beginning, but the sampras Agassiz quarterfinal of 2001 it's amazing to think of all we think of so many of their finals and they played five major finals and Sampras won four of them and they had they had the three finals at the open in 1995 and and uh, 2002 but that quarterfinal in 01 there were no service breaks in four sets all tiebreakers The, the it was incredibly calm in the stadium that night those were the days when the wind would blow fiercely through that stadium pre-roof. pre-roof days, that was a wind tunnel in Arthur Ash Stadium. It changed once they put the roof structure up because it, it, it that now shields the wind completely. But in those days it was often very windy. It was not that night, it was a night match. and to me, from both sides of the net, it was the best match they ever had against each other. It was incredibly high quality and Agassi served extraordinarily well himself, and neither one of them could fashion a service break, and it all came down to those breakers, and the fans gave them a big standing ovation before the start of the four-set tiebreak, realizing it might end, but also, in my mind, my interpretation was they weren't just applauding for that that night and that moment, they were basically saluting them for their whole careers, because they didn't know how many more times they were going to see them, so it turned out they saw them the next year in the final, but that was a, a, a golden moment for both players to be appreciated on that level. So I, I think of that one. No, I think you, will, you, you two have already sort of touched on all of the, all of the matches that I would cite that f- because Nadal-Verdasco, Saqib, was so important because it went in my memory five hours, 14 minutes, five sets, just a pulsating, bruising, debilitating encounter, and Nadal bounces back and wins the final from Roger in five sets, which was a remarkable recovery. And when he tried to do it eight years later, he wasn't able to pull it off. He had a bruising five-setter with Grigor Dimitrov in the semis in Melbourne of, of, at the Australian, and then lost to Roger despite the 3-1 lead in the fifth. And, and who's to say whether time had taken its toll. Rafa was the same fierce Rafa, but I, I, the Berdasco match was really unexpectedly brilliant on both sides of the
2: net. Not as Berdasco again. It's a good tangent. Is Berdasco an underachiever, overachiever? Because, in my humble view, from 2007, when I saw him at the open a couple of times in the outside courts, I just thought this guy is good enough to win a major. I mean, now we think majors are like very hard to come, but the, from weaponry wise, like that forehand is one of the biggest shots I have ever seen up close. How do you see his career? I mean, overachiever, underachiever?
1: No, I think Ver- I think Verdasco was also an erratic player. You know, okay, great, you're yeah. right. He had he had all those big weapons, but he also made a lot of errors. So I thought uh, his career was kind of appropriate for uh, for for him. He um, he could he could he's kind of like that uh, that. Uh, that mind that you don't want to step on as you're walking through the field, and uh, and once in a while people would step on it, and uh, you know <laughs> they would they would suffer the consequences. So yeah, Verdasco I thought had a pretty good career. I would not call him an underachiever nor 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 overachiever. I thought he did very well with uh, with what he had, and uh, you know Fernando Gonzalez is another guy that's that, that that I'd put in the same category too. You know he he can bludgeon the the ball and the opponent. Out of the court, like he did against Rafa one time. Uh, 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 where was it in the U.S. Open? Correct, if I'm if I, if I'm correct. Yep. And uh, and uh, but he he would also make a lot of errors at times. So you know those are the kind of guys that you that nobody wants to play against or nobody wants to run up against. But if you run up against them and they're not having a good day, then you can also have a routine day on the on the court. But uh, they were fun to watch. I mean, Fernando Gonzalez. Some of some of the winners that he would hit. If there's a highlight reel out there somewhere, and same with Verdasco, yeah. is, uh, is 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 spectacular. They, they they could hit spectacular shots. But you know, one name that we did mention and Sakibah, I don't know if I'm cutting into what you were going to say next, no. but uh, one name that we, not that we did mention him, but we didn't talk about enough is um, is you know Andy Roddick. We uh, we talked about how uh, not Andy Roddick, uh, Andy Murray. And, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Andy Murray. You know, we talked about how Djokovic was about to complete the piece of the puzzle of the big big three. But Andy Roddick also had very good years in 2008 and 2009 that kind of uh, echoed the calling of a possible Big Four even. And, um, and you know, by the way, talking about, uh, you know, some of the great matches of the, of the decades, although this is not talked about very often at all, this match, but, you know, his semifinal in, in, against Andy Roddick at Wimbledon, you know, we talked about the 2009 final plenty, you know, between Roddick and Federer, but Roddick almost didn't make it there because uh, you know the, the, it, it was a very tough four-set battle between uh, Andy Murray and Andy Roddick, and I and I felt like Murray should have won the third tiebreaker, the, the third-set tiebreaker, at least, and gone up two sets to one, and and he ends up losing the fourth set in a tiebreaker too. And I thought the quality of that match was very high, considering how early it was in uh, Andy Murray's career.
2: And Steve can That's correct funny. me that time. Uh... Roddick, before that match, was having a little bit of trouble in the rivalry with some Murray. He was manhandled by Murray at the 2006 Wimbledon. And I think also lost to him this San Jose or somewhere indoors. So those are early days but Murray's return was giving Roddick fits. So that 2009 win was huge in the semis.
0: It was. It was. And uh, it, almost, it almost carried him to the title. Almost, but not quite. No, no doubt. We can't be ignoring Murray because he, he I think of that, win over Rafa that got him into the finals of the 2008 U S open. And that was also a pivotal moment in his career. And, and, uh, he wasn't quite, he couldn't quite handle the moment when he played, he didn't play terribly well against Roger in the finals, but he, he had arrived. He had he'd shown it because he had to beat Rafa over two days. Some terrible weather had come in and the match got suspended, finished it off on the Sunday. You know, that was not, that was not easy to do. And, yeah, Murray, but I, I think back, Murray, you know, and here are Murray and Djokovic separated by one, born one week apart, and they've known each other seemingly almost all of their lives. And I'll only say this I don't go along with the, the, there are some who are saying now that it should be a big four. And yes, Andy won. He did manage to win two Wimbledon's, which is phenomenal accomplishment in 2013 and 16. And he beat Novak in the Wimbledon final in 13. He also beat Novak in the 2012 US Open final in five sets. One of his that was his breakthrough Grand Slam win. Uh and and he's a great, great player, but I I I can't go along with that terminology. I just feel like it was a big three and Murray had a Hall of Fame career and one that he can be immensely proud of. But I can't quite put him on the same shelf as the other three. How do you feel, mark
1: You know how sometimes people will say, oh, if you take the period between 2015 and 2019, this player was the, well, you know, you got to take into account their whole career. You know, you cannot pick and choose the periods. So yes, uh, overall, I, I would have to agree with you. It's the, the big three spans more than twice as many years as, uh, As what the big four spend, to me, if if you want to call the big, if you want to really strictly limit it to big four, you got to go with 2012 to 2016, and you cannot go any more than that. But you know, we're talking we're talking about an era of tennis, and the big three era definitely overlaps by by a long margin. Big four that you cannot really call an era. You know, I I can't really give. You know, I can't really reconcile the term big 4 era for only 3 or 4 years it needs to be longer than that so yes big 3 era definitely uh, overlapped uh, if they, if there were such a thing as a big 4
2: i think we no we we covered quite a lot here i was just thinking uh david enko is another guy we didn't mention a lot about but uh, you can't cover every player no so any parting he was thoughts one of the on
1: consistent any... ones he was one of the consistent ones he yeah you know he kept uh, he was lacrotic he Throughout the decade, he kept on going.
0: But also reminds me a little bit more about what you were saying about Leighton, that Leighton got the most out of himself. The, he, it, 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 the spectacular part is what he achieved, not his gain. And I would say that about Davidenko. He's very quick. He, he did everything well. He, 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 the alacrity around the court, remarkable and he had his wins over the top players, but and he had four years in a row among the top five, and then he finished sixth the next year. So those the, 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 those results reflect the level of his game. But but no, I feel like he got he did he was not unfulfilled. I put him in that category as someone who definitely squeezed everything out of himself.
2: Definitely. All right, guys. I think we have recorded. Almost two hours, this decade demanded this kind of uh, podcast. And I think you both came out in your convincing manner and a lot of knowledge exchange, a lot of notes exchange here. Hopefully the listeners will enjoy every bit of it. And the preview is for the next one when we get together in roughly six months time, because that's been the frequency that these podcasts have separated themselves. A lot of Nadal, a lot of Djokovic to follow in the next podcast when Djokovic clearly dominates and becomes that... Uh, becomes an alpha contender uh, right there. And Mert, thank you again, Steve. Always a pleasure exchanging those with you both.
0: Forgive me for just adding one last little statistical tidbit about Roger Federer that still amazes me when I look back on that period. And those are two, you know, we talked about 2004, 5, 6, and 7, the biggest four-year, you know, the biggest four years of his career, really, in terms of consistent excellence. But In 2005 and 2006, he went back-to-back, 81 wins, 4 losses, 92 wins, 5 losses in those two years, and won 23 tournaments combined, 12 in one year, 11 in the other. Uh, I mean, I I look back on that, how much he played in those years and how little he lost, and that, I think, is the best Roger Federer we ever saw.
2: I think that's the perfect way to... And this podcast, the decade belonged to Federer. Amazing, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Steve, uh, thank you for all these anecdotes, including the ones that you reg- you remember from, uh, you know, press conferences and your conversations with the. Oh, not at it, all. It really enriches the conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Bert. Yeah. I did a lot.
2: Yeah, thank you both, and hopefully the listeners will enjoy every bit of it. And we'll get together the band again for the 2010 podcast somewhere down the road. Thank you both, and enjoy your Sunday.
0: Thank you, Saki. Thank you.